All right. What's up, you elk fanatics? This is Cody Rich from the Rich Outdoors podcast. And over the years, I've recorded hundreds, literally hundreds, which is crazy to say, elk hunting podcasts. And some of them ended up on my personal feed. Some of them ended up in a Wapiti Wednesday feed. Some of them that we created just for our Patreons. And I wanted to create one place to house all of our best elk hunting content. So we created the Elk Hunt feed. And it's a place for all those episodes to live. And we're gonna be downloading, uploading, whatever you wanna call it, a ton of great elk hunting content. But it only seemed fitting that we start out with the Elk Compilation Podcast. We did this one a few years ago, and what started as a way to put some of our best content in one one episode turned into this six-hour behemoth of a show. And actually, I'm going to put it in two parts, but uh, this show has been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times and is a huge hit. So I thought we'd kick off the Elk Hunt Podcast with this uh, compilation series. So I hope you guys enjoy it. The only ask I have is this is a brand new feed, so I need your help getting some reviews for this feed. So if you could take a second and go leave the Elk Hunt podcast a review, that would be awesome. It would mean the world to me. Uh, And we're going to be putting out a ton of really great elk interviews that I've done over the years. Uh, this is going to be more information than you have time to consume, I promise you, but uh, I, it's going to be some good stuff. So go leave us a review, check out some of our episodes, uh, and enjoy. Happy elk hunting. Hey fellow elk fanatics, if you're completely obsessed with elk hunting like me, then join me every Wednesday for tips, tactics, and stories on elk hunting from elk hunting legends to fellow DIYers. This is the Rich Outdoors Wapiti Wednesday. Alrighty, so what would you say your main tactic or your expertise in hunting is? Yeah, it's always, for me, it's always going to come back, um, to calling. Um, we're extremely aggressive. We use, uh, calling to locate, you know, 95% of the time. If we can't glass up a bull early in the morning, um, and late at night, by the time they come out to feed, a lot of times if you rely on your glass, it's, it's too late to make a move. So we, we do rely heavily on our bugling. Um, our, my two tactics, which I would say, um, just until recently I had one tactic and that was extremely aggressive, um, elk hunting. You locate a bull, um, get the wind right, and you, you close the gap. Um, now that I've, I would say, wiser, or um, maybe it's that I'm hunting uh, bigger, more mature bulls, and when I find a bull I want, so now we've added uh, the extreme to aggressive, and it's more of the sit and wait. Um, starting, you know, we're starting to look at patterning bulls, uh, a big bull, as long as they're not. Uh, mess with a lot of times we can start to pattern a bull and in my opinion that's one of the best ways to have a chance at killing a bigger bull um, rather than using those super aggressive tactics now with that said when we do go in um, you know for that setup there's there's a lot of aggressive tactics that go into that we try to cover the ground as fast as we can get the wind right and then get you know right in his wheelhouse before we make any sound so you kind of touched on it a little bit, but how have your tactics changed from when you started till now? I mean, you kind of talked about like as you start to progress and and chase bigger bulls, the timing gets more crucial. But kind of touch on how how your tactics have evolved over the last I don't know, say ten years. So I want to caveat that with where I've hunted as well. So starting out, 
um, I hunted my back door, you know, before the 2000, you know, era hit, I didn't know there were big bulls anywhere else. I grew up hunting raghorns here in the Willapa Hills, but there were a lot of them. Um, I could go in one of my walking areas and, uh, before, you know, an hour into daylight, I've already rode my bike by 20 legal bulls. Um, so it's a completely different style of hunting. Um, you know, so there I could be extremely aggressive if I screwed one up or a situation up. I rode my bike another quarter mile and got on a different bull. Um, so I was very lucky, fortunate um, to have that many opportunities. Um, as I've, if I started venturing away from home um, and, and you get into those bigger bulls, you realize that, you know, sometimes you're – and the style, so we're backpacked in. Um, you don't have the leniency of driving in your truck 20 miles to a different spot and getting into, you know, a, a new – a new group of elk or a new area that hasn't been messed with. So when we're in these backcountry hunts um, and hunting some of these larger bulls, um, if I've got to chase them on foot, I don't necessarily want to bump them all the time. So that's kind of where that aggressive style has had to kind of meld with a uh, a sit and wait style. But I don't do anything like halfway. I don't I don't really do like the slow still hunting. You know, call and walk a little bit. It's usually walk really fast, beagle, walk really fast, beagle. Um, you know, cover ground, find elk, and then um, when we find the one we want, then we kind of make some decisions on on if we want to go aggressive right then. If the if the environmental conditions, everything adds up that we think we can give it a go right then, we'll be aggressive right off the bat. But if we think that, you know, there's a lot of eyes, a lot of satellites, the wind's questionable. Um, now I have a tactic in my book where I might sit down, eat a snack and just watch them to the glass and try to figure everything out. So what predicates that decision? How do you know when to, when to stay and when to go? How do you, how do you know when to be super aggressive and when to wait for the right moment? I think it's when you add all of those questions and factors time of day. You know, if you spot a bull a half hour um, before dark and there's just no chance, then it doesn't. So I I think you take all of these um, questions in your mind and you kind of put them on a, you know, the teeter totter. If, if the majority of them add up that it could be a successful stock, then by all means we may make a go at it. If, if there's too many things working against us, even though there may be one or two, um, you know, you know, in our favor, uh, we may elect to, to sit it out. And so you truly just ask yourself that, that, uh, you know, questions, what's the wind doing? What's the time? Um, what time is it going to be when I get over there? The wind may be perfect right now, but if it takes me an hour to cross that draw and get over there, what's the wind going to be doing when I get over there? Um, you know, just herd dynamics, a lot of it comes into your, your gut feeling. But if I look over at a hillside and I've got a group of elk that's fairly tight, Versus a group of elk that has seven satellite bulls spread out over 400 yards and a group of cows that's completely scattered. My chances of getting to that bull that if he's in the middle are, are slim to none. Um, but on that same side, that may set up a perfect situation that if he's on the fringe, that's the exact situation I want because I can get on the other side if, if the wind allows. So there's just a lot of you know questions that go into and then it, it all boils down um, to those those decisions and those questions all kind of hinge on your gut. Um, we always kind of let our gut control. It's not a, it's not a good answer because, you know, it doesn't teach anybody anything. Um, but we always eventually go with our gut. If even when we have things adding up against us, sometimes we'll just go. Yeah. And, and that gut just comes from experience. And you were talking about timing and <clears throat> so many times I've been super aggressive and it's say a bull, a bull pipes off just after he gets out of bed and maybe it's three or four in the afternoon 
and you're super aggressive to make that move. But the reality was that he's going to make his move. You know, he's going to get up and go to wherever he's going to go. And so his move plays into what your move should be. And so, you know, you say you hear a bull bugle, but waiting to see which direction he's going to go, you know, where he's going to go feed at and maybe trying to intercept that bull between there is a smarter decision than just getting him on, get, getting in on, getting on him super fast. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes when you spot bulls, you know, in, in roadless areas or some of these areas we're hunting now, even uh, biking areas, it may, we try to put a literal and, and an accurate schedule together. If it's going to take me two hours to get there, we try to, you know, look at how fast are they moving? What happens if they slow down? What happens if they sit still? What happens if they speed up? Um, try to kind of go through all those probabilities. And does this plan fail if he walks twice as fast as they are, the herd is right now? Does this plan fail, um, you know, if they sit still? Uh, and then, you know, so there's a lot of questions that go into it. But um, just like you said, it, it does boil down to your gut, which comes from a lot of experience. But even with that said, we screw up a lot still. If you had to label, whether it be fitness, elk knowledge, or shooting ability, how would you prioritize those and in what order, I guess? For me, um, always comes back to elk hunting knowledge. And it's probably because I've, I've used that, you know, to, to my advantage and just, uh, you know, the situations that I've been, um, elk knowledge is always, uh, you know, kind of overrode those other two. I would say that shooting and, uh, you know, your physical conditioning probably go hand in hand. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's a clear second or third, uh, you know, you only get one shot, sometimes two shots a year. Sometimes it's more than that, but it all comes down to everything we put into it, whether you are training year round, um, still all comes down to that one shot, whether you've used your elk knowledge to get in there. So your one shot's definitely important. Uh, when you're out shooting your bow in your yard, you know, it's typically, you know, lower heart rate. You're not sweating. It's just routine, um, easy. You know, when you're in the, when you're out in the woods, uh, you know, everything's different. And so that shot and, and the ability to shoot is, is of high importance. You know, you're sweating, your heart, elevated heart rate, you got mosquitoes, you know, buzzing the tower, you're driving you nuts. Um, so shooting is important. And I always feel that, um, you know, getting better at shooting an elk in the woods is just repetition, you know, on the range, um, shooting foam. Physical condition, um, you know, Charlie, my hunting partner, is, is a perfect example of that. Um, he uses his elk knowledge to highly um, favor him not having to be in extreme, <laughs> extreme physical condition. You know, he, he, uh, he's great at finding elk. He's great at figuring out where elk should be and where they are, whether it's through bugling or following tracks or, um, you know, following smell of elk, um, getting on their tracks and figuring it out. Um, so you can, you can put a band aid I think on every situation. Um, so physical conditioning though is still important. Um, you know, if a hunt's tough and you need to keep grinding on day seven, if, if you're not in good shape and you're wore down, um, you're not going to be able to finish out a hunt either. So I think ultimately, um, in the long run, you know, as far as success is concerned, they're, they're pretty equal. Uh, but I would still put elk hunting knowledge uh, at the top. Yeah. All right. On gear, let's actually touch on, you know, uh, some of your new calls. Let's just go right there and then I'll have a couple more follow-up questions around out the episode. But, you know, new calls came out last year. I got to play with them. A bunch of guys got to play with them. They're hands down the best elk calls I've ever used. Um, but one of the questions I get a lot is which one do I use, Jason? Uh, so everybody calls different. So I'm going to you know preface it with that, that the call that I say, um, 
that I use isn't necessarily the call that's going to work best for you. But I get enough feedback from guys that have used the calls, like Cody had mentioned um, last year before we even released these calls. I wanted to know just what guys thought. And without any rhyme or reason, um, we built the calls that we liked. We shotgunned them out to a group of about 50 um, diehard elk hunters. And it wasn't just diehards. It was guys that struggled with my old frames. It was guys that, that loved, you know, some of the, the Primo's domes. It was guys that loved, you know, the Bigling Bowl game calls, pallet plate. It was, it was a plethora of guys that either liked or loved all these calls. So I could really get a good sample uh, of everybody out there. Um, we sent them all out, um, you know, got feedback and, uh, you know, everybody loves something different. So I'm like, dang it. So I, you know, I ended up coming up with five production calls, but for me and the feedback that I've got, I would say our great amp frame, which is my preference is highly touted. Um, most guys, um, seem to go that way. And the other one that gets a lot of great feedback is the black call, um, with the red latex. Now, in my opinion, if I could take two calls out of my lineup, it would either be those two or the gray and white because my calling style leads me to want a heavy, a little bit heavier read so I can put a little bit more into it. Now, the black call is a little bit higher pitched, uh, more of your uh, raghorn type bugles, um, you know, your, your younger cow and calf sounds. Um, me, I like to call big and loud all the time, so the gray and the white fit me better. Um, the orange and green are great calls as well. They're just, they're more, they're not such a specialty call, but they're just kind of on the, you know, the orange is on the extreme light end and then the green's got more of a stiff tape and stuff, but some guys really love the green call as well. I think, you know, for me, and this is kind of what I've told other people that because I had one of each all last season, and I think that's pretty much all I ran. I, I think maybe I had two, uh, two sets, but I just basically had one of each and there was situations where I would just pop this or that one in it didn't really matter you know it's like they all are so close that it's not extreme differences it's not like blowing i don't know a triple read versus you know a super light single read they're all very very manageable and so if it was me my recommendation is buy one of each and even if those are the only five calls you use all season that's fine you can do everything you need to do with if one of them you're gonna like one more than the other but essentially they're gonna last you i mean i think i burned I didn't burn more than one call throughout the whole season. Like these calls lasted me. I th- think pretty much the whole season. I might've burned one out. Um, but that's about it. And I call a lot. So I think, you know, my, my recommendation is buy one of each. And even if that's all you get this year, you'll, you'll definitely be able to do, do some damage with them. Yeah. The durability and consistency is actually really bad for trying to sell more calls. Uh, we, we've been getting some great life out of these and the prototypes that you tested last year, we've actually um, found a few ways to make them even a little more durable. So we're pretty, we're pretty excited about that. And then the consistency from call to call to be able to you know pick up 10 of the grays and they all sound really similar. Um, I do want to throw a bone to the born and raised outdoors guys. Um, you were actually down at triple X where we met with them to kind of develop their signature series. I will say that why our five production calls are fairly similar. We came up with two of their calls that are, um, kind of on an extreme end, but still had, just like you had said, they all sound good. The born and raised are a different call and they actually feel a little different, um, as far as using them, but they still are a great call. So we've kind of went, um, you know, a little different than what we were uh, used to on our specs. And, uh, those are getting a bunch of great feedback as well. So there's another option with a little, um, you know, a tighter call for some guys that prefer that, but still a single and still really manageable, um, to use for most everybody. Oh yeah. It was just crazy as we're kind of like developing and testing all of those just to see, you know, to have everyone in the same room and have such different preferences throughout each person. And it, it's crazy to me, but you know, that's it. They're all great and they all sound good. And 
and they're just all very different. And then, you know, what, what say Cody was a big fan of was different than what I was a big fan of. And it just, it's crazy. It's crazy how different, yep. uh, you know, very similar elk hunters too. And, you know, yep. sound similar when they bugle, but the read is different. You know, you, I would have thought from the outside looking in, I would have thought, oh, if you're, you know, kind of an inexperienced elk hunter, you're going to like this style or that style. But you know, both, you know, everyone's kind of super experienced with elk calling on that room. And it was like, still very different calls. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it is, and, and it's tough. I love doing it because it makes me a better call maker. It makes me understand if I listen to somebody that was struggling on say one of my production gray amp frames, but to, to listen to them, diagnose kind of what's happening and then to figure out the solution, I've just become a better elk caller. And the day I stopped trying to do that is the day that, you know, um, I might as well give it up or, or stay in the same place. Yeah. No uh, you know, so it, it, I love doing that. Um, you know, it's frustrating sometimes trying to find the right recipe, but, uh, um, ultimately it's cool when it works out. Nice. Um, so, yep. Well, great products as usual. I mean, it's just one of the best reads I've ever used hand, or hands down. I think I've tried every read out there. So I love the thing. Um, a huge fan of it, but let's get back to bow hunting. If you had any advice, to give yourself that first year of bow hunting and those first couple of years of bow hunting, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah. So my, my tactics were very good in my first year. I think it was 1999 or two, yeah, 98 or 99. I had first picked up a bow, you know, rifle hunting. I was always just chasing elk down in the woods, the, the way that my dad's and my uncles and my grandpa's had always did it. And so I picked that bow up and, and I was pretty effective calling right off the bat uh, I had ordered a Cabela's special as like a PSE Marauder right off the front page of Cabela's and I was all pumped. Went to the bow shop and had it set up, uh, you know, with the kit though. So you had like the little, you know, two metal fingers, you know, the prong rest. Yeah. You had like a, the a 1999, um, you know, three pin site that was cheap. Uh, you know, and every year I was using like the PSE carbon arrows that came in the kit, you know, nothing. And, and I thought I was good enough. You know, you shoot the bale a couple times at, at 20 and 30 yards and you're ready to go kill an elk. Um, I got out in the woods and while I, I did have great success calling bulls in right off the bat, I missed six bulls that first year in our early season. Um, and that was hunting weekend. So, I mean, it's, we are calling in a lot of bulls routinely you know on week you know a week morning you know a saturday morning saturday night we're calling in a lot of bulls in these these two weeks i just could not make a shot i could not execute a shot i fell apart i forgot how to anchor i forgot you know to look through my peep and center everything up forgot to check my bubble and i don't even know if i forgot to do all those because i can't remember you know hardly yeah. any of it um so then i realized at that point it kind of Flip, you know, it may it wasn't until after season. I was fortunate enough to kill a bull in our late season that year, finally. Um, and then in the off season, I really sat down and, and like I like to do every year, still is kind of reevaluate the season and, and what was good and what was bad. And I'm like, man, this archery thing is a different beast. I'm, I'm going to have to practice. I'm going to have to become an efficient archer. I'm going to have to be good. I'm going to have to make shots under pressure. Um, and so that off season, I shot and shot and shot. Um, until it's, it's just second nature for me. And so that was the advice I would give, uh, to my, you know, myself as, as a new archery hunter. Um, I would say the majority of guys is, is not be too timid, um, in the woods. You know, everybody's afraid to screw up. Everybody's afraid to bump a bull. Um, about five or six years ago, our slogan as we were hunting was, if you aren't bumping elk, you aren't hunting. <laughs> um, you know, it, we truly were, we would just get into a herd. We would try to be too aggressive. We'd bump a herd and we'd have to circle back and get on something different. Um, it's just, there's, you can learn so much and you're never going to kill a bull or, or a cow, whatever you're after, unless you're close. 
Um, and so was, I, why I love calling elk, your feet are the greatest tool to getting you close. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice is, you know, if you're not bumping elk, you're not hunting elk is, is especially in those early days, I think too many people are timid and they don't push it hard enough. And I, and it's funny, you know, you talked about kind of recapping at the end of the year. And I, I think my final question would be, you know, if you could go back and, uh, if there was an elk, you know, the, the one that got away and you could go back and do something different, what would that be? You know, tell me about a story where one got away and you just beat yourself up for going back. I know personally me, there's you know, a couple different bulls I can think of where because I was being ultra aggressive, say the day before and bumped an elk, I moved in on this, on this big bull. And in hindsight, I sh- if I would have stayed aggressive, I probably would have got him killed. But because I wasn't aggressive enough, you know, he got away. And so now I beat myself up over that. And I, I've done that in the past, even during season, you know, I'll bump one elk one day and the next day I'm too timid. And then the next day I'm too aggressive. And, you know, it's like, I, I need to stay consistent with how aggressive I am. So you get, hold on, you get, you get to 150. I mean, say let's, let's back up a little bit and maybe you locate, did you locate this bull bugle or bull before, or how did you find this elk? Yeah. In most cases, I already hear him bugling. If I, if I had him respond to a bugle, I'm really reading him to see where he's feeling. Because if a bull is not rutting or there's no hot cow around, he's not being harassed by other bulls because there's no hot cow. A lot of times he just won't say nothing to the cow call. It's not every time. Don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong, but there's times when you know they're right there and you can cow call, cow call, cow call, nothing, nothing, nothing. He won't say anything to it. And it's because he's not aggressive. There's nothing there where he's already peaked up. He's already ramped up because of the other cows coming in heat. So a lot of times you have to make him bugle, but that's another strategy altogether. So I've got a question. Um, I just want to set up a scenario and see how each one of you guys answers it, how you'd approach this. So you come up on a ridge, you uh, pitch a locator bugle down in a big old basin. Wind's going down, you hear a big old bugle in the bottom. How do you approach it? What's your call sequence? What's the time of day? What time of day? <laughs> Midday, bed it down. Go ahead, Jason. Okay, so I bed it down, middle of the day. So I'm going to assume the thermals are coming up in my face, midday. Yeah, yeah. Thermals should be going up. You're going to get into that whirlpool effect when you get down on the creek. So I'm most likely going to go, whether it's up or down the ridge, I'm going to go whatever way is down the drainage up the ridge, you know, that direction of the ridge, and probably try to get myself a safe three to 400 yards down the creek from where I think this bull is, and then drop down to the creek. And almost always, there are some creek drainages that won't blow up, but almost always that cool water is going to take my wind down. And so I have a, I have a safety net when I'm tucked down in this creek, and I'll probably work up, work up the creek. Some, some more information I'm going to need, how close do I think he is to the creek? If I have to get into that whirlpool section of wind, I'm better to wait. To get, I might go down in there, but I may just sit in the creek for a couple hours and wait for the wind to come back down at about 6.30 at night. And then I got more constant thermals. I don't got the whirlpool effect. Everything's getting drawn down the drainage and or down ridge and down the drainage. And then I can maybe work that bull at night. And most likely if he goes up to feed, 
I know you hunt Western Washington, so they might not go up to feed. If he goes up to feed on like an, an east side bull, um, I can chase him or I can hunt him with constant wind. Or if, if he's going to stay there and feed and gets up and, and starts being ready, I can kind of plan my attack from that point. Um, but uh, as lazy as I am, I'll put in the extra work there to, to make sure that that wind's right in that situation and approach from the right direction. Um, you could drop straight down on him, but I'd, like I said, there's, unless you're down the creek, far enough you're going to get in that chance where the wind's going up but then just going to get sucked down and i don't want to risk getting winded so i'd probably definitely go down creek yeah i mean mine's kind of similar i would take um you know looking on the ridge obviously like you said wind's coming up but i get nervous anytime you get in those bottoms because it starts to swirl so i'm going to try to stay on the down river side so that's going that way but also stay high enough that i don't get into the swirl and basically move in from there and get as close as i can so it's going to depend a lot on where he is in each scenario um but same thing i'm going to stay pretty much quiet until i get right up to him um, and it's going to depend on what his temperature is and what he was doing if he keeps talking that's handy and if he kept talking, I may just try to slip in completely and, and see what's going on and never say a word. If he was quiet and they had kind of bedded down for the afternoon, I'm going to slip in. Ideally, I think I would like to be there about when he's going to get up anyway. Um, so I think I would time it to where I'm going to be there about 3 o'clock. I may just sit there, say it's 10.30 or 11. I may let him kind of bed down for a little bit, get his rest. Um, and then know that he's going to stand up about three and then he's going to be really ready to go. So I'm going to try to slip in and not be too close so that wind's going to do goofy things down the bottom, but slip in, stay high enough to stay out of the swirl, move in close about three o'clock and give him a challenge bugle. And then pretty much see what happens from there. Yeah, I'm, I'm about the same as what Cody, I don't want to get all the way in the bottom, but I also don't want to come in straight on top of them because typically they're not going to want to come straight uphill down. on you. Um, a lot of times the elk will want to feel uh, power by by towering over you. So you, you kind of got to get down, but off to the side. So when they do come up, they're not being threatened by you being above them. And then they can side hill and come at you at, at your at your height. But you got to really listen in case he's coming up too high that you've got to start moving back up that hill so he can't wind you. Um, but that's... Yeah, I think that's 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 a real big tip that I learned uh, a long time ago is, you know, you kind of want to give them the edge, right? You want to make them feel a little more powerful. And uh, if you can get below them just a little bit or even, you know, side hill of them, but a little bit below them, just feel like they got the edge. Because when you watch bulls and they're going through that entire sequence of events to lead up to that fight, um, typically they try to get above each other. You know, when they come together, one's going to be on that top side and he's going to have a little more strength yeah. and he's, he's going to have I, the power. So. so much just body language of the way they'll tilt, tilt yeah. their head and look at a bull and that bull will, will just move off just because of the way he positioned, yeah. postured up on that bull. So yeah. there, there's a lot to be said about I don't want to be on top of him. I want yeah. I want to let him feel stronger. Right. So we have, more we have some, to come in. We were able to watch on uh, Charlie's wife, Kelly's two cannon hunt. We were able to watch across the drainage one night. The dominant bull took the top, and they literally just paralleled each other. That dominant bull would bristle up, and he always wanted to be on top. So it was cool to not really be involved, but kind of see how they interacted with each other. Right. And that dominant bull never let that that smaller bull get below him on the ridge. He always, and it was just a paralleling, keeping him away from his herd. Yeah. The question was, what do you? What's your tactic for bachelor groups of bulls? You get large groups of just bachelor bulls um, in mid-September, and you get a lot of a lot of commotion, rut fest type 
activity um, just from all the all the bulls in the same canyon. So what's your tactic? <laughs> Charlie. Uh, <laughs> super sexy cow calls and lots of them. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's my tactic. Really. So we, where I've hunted, um, in the years past, we've had the same situation. Um, and there'll be, you know, a Canyon chock full of bulls screaming. And it seems as though it, it, it is, it's just a bunch of bachelor group or bachelor bulls, um, just talking to each other. And like probably what you found is that it's a really hard to keep track of which bull you are following when you got six or seven in the same Canyon, um, rattling off and, and, uh, it's kind of hard. They don't seem to want to come into anything. Um, I've had that exact same thing, you know, and a lot of what we did, um, in those scenarios was basically try to pick out the most unique bugle so I could keep track of them. And what would happen when, when this happened to us was basically we would not hear a word of peep. You couldn't get a bull to bugle until an hour before or a half hour before, um, dark. And all of a sudden six bulls would pipe off and they seemed as though they were just basically feeding and just bugling to hear themselves bugle, but would not respond to a cow call, would not respond to a bugle. And so we, we just kind of had to change our tactic and move in and try to pick the one bugle that we could pick apart and try to slip in on him. Um, one of the things that would work, we'd find is if we could get real close and start raking, we could get him to start raking. And once we got him to kind of mirror us, we could move in from there. And that's kind of how we did it. A lot of those times those batcher bulls don't have a lot of interest. Um, you know, you could use cow calls, slip in and use cow calls, but again, you have to get into a vicinity that's close enough that draws his interest into that. So you kind of have to be in that realm to, to use those soft cow calls and draw him away. Yeah. I think from my experience with, with multiple bulls like that is as soon as I start bugling, it's fun because the bulls are bugling, but me being a hundred yards away is no threat to the other three or four bulls that are only 30 yards away from that bull. And I can never seem to pull anybody out. So we either sneak in as close as possible. And like Charlie said, either if I'm going to do any calls, it would be a cow call at that point. But usually it's just going to be a spot and stock at that time. And it, and I honestly don't care if I screw it up because if I break that herd of five, six bulls up, that's just bulls everywhere now. And it's going to give me my better opportunities to work one bull tomorrow than trying to work five bulls or four bulls together today. And another part of that scenario is the same thing. If you have, you know, it's, this happened in Idaho where you have a herd bull and a herd and he has so many satellites, you would think that the high bull to cow ratio would make him aggressive. But the fact of the matter is he's so busy chasing off elk that he's not going to go very far from his harem. Yeah. So it's, it happened just, I mean, yeah, it's fun to have him bugle and everyone's bugling like crazy. But essentially in those cases, I'll, I'll throw my bugle in my pack and just try to play cat and mouse with a herd and get close enough because he's doing that number where he's running around and he's trying to chase off three or four different satellites that are pushing him. I'm just going to try to get close enough to get a shot. Um, I'm not going to be able to call him away from that just because he's dealing with immediate threats right there. And I've, I've done that to where I followed a herd for five hours just playing cat and mouse because he's just running bulls like crazy. And it doesn't do me any good to bugle. Yeah, he'll bugle, but he's not going to come yeah. in. And so me and Charlie, in 2015, we hiked into an area and, and spiked out. We woke up the next morning, and there's a herd bull going nuts, and now they're mature satellite going at him. But off to the side, there were about six satellite bulls. They would bugle occasionally. They would respond to us, but they were kind of doing their own thing. They kind of knew they didn't have a chance with these other two bulls around. Um, long story short, we ended up bumping the herd bull. They went around the side of the mountains, but the satellites didn't really have a clue what happened. We went and what sat on the other side of the ridge and ate lunch that day. About midday, we decided to come back. We assumed that, you know, the satellites would either follow that herd out or they would still be there. And we were able to break a, a really, really good five point off. 
um, and call them right into the trail um, just by waiting until that midday till kind of everything settled down. Um, so we just had went back after the herd bull had kind of moved off and that group of six bulls was still right there uh, and called them in midday uh, with some excited cow calling. Yeah. I would, I would recommend maybe trying to slip in midday. I mean, they're going to be dead silent and they may not say anything, but if you can listen to them and kind of just basically use your ears to figure out where they're going and try to slip in there using, keeping the wind good and maybe just do some soft cow calls, you might be able to pull them away. Um, if there's a wallow in the area, you know, kind of slipping into that wallow as they're going to get up, you know, they're going to get up. They might go by that wallow, you know, or late afternoon, early evening, um, and being in that position, you know, and just kind of utilizing those features, knowing if they're using the same path, this is kind of what they're doing. I mean, it may change from day to day, but if they're going from this Canyon over to this area and you can't seem to get them to respond in between, maybe try to hit them up while they're midday in their beds and try to slip in and do some cow calling there. And this is why we talk a lot about how sometimes hunting big bulls is almost easier um, because they're more predictable than small bulls and bachelor herds and things like that. Is that what you guys have found too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but <clears throat> when you guys are out chasing, I mean, you guys kind of have a mark that you're going for. You're going for a herd bull. Do you guys call in a lot of satellite bulls? <laughs> you know, it's funny. We were talking about this the other day and like in the last three years, I haven't really had a shot at a satellite bull just because of the Yeah, tactic. me neither. Yeah, it seems like the way that we're doing it, the biggest bulls tend to come in. I don't know why that yeah. is, but it, we're targeting those big bulls. But right. inevitably, there's a lot of satellites around, and the same routine we're trying to use for big bulls that has worked in the past. We've been calling in a lot of stinking satellite bulls. Um, they'll come in first or check it out. So well, I know we are. I mean, but we do have a high percentage of herd bulls as well. You know, come in or or at least break. We might not always get a shot, but. Some of them satellite bulls are pretty nice, so <laughs> I, mean, I know uh, in 2014, uh, going back to the bachelor herd, um, we were actually packing out a little bull that called in for the wife and uh, had the herd bull erupting up in this thick timber, and uh, we ended up dropping our packs going after this herd bull. Of course, my little buddy, uh, can't name any names, but... Uh, we ended up moving in on this bull and, and just, just couldn't quite get a shot. He was probably a 360-ish bull, just a tank. But anyway, we go back, get our packs, we're heading out. And probably about a mile from where this herd was, you had this bachelor group of five bulls. And uh, I actually were coming down the hill. And what I was saying about the super sexy cow calls, you know, I've just given out quite a few estrus wines and stuff. Just sounding as sexy as I could. Um, and, Which uh, is pretty sexy. It's pretty sexy. <laughs> and uh, I actually called five bulls in at one time. And one of them was a three, about a 310 six by six. But uh, it's kind of a cool scenario. But I don't know if it was a weather change because it actually, it started raining pretty good. Um, but these bulls, they didn't, no, actually one did bugle before it came in. But I just cow called and had all these bulls out here just it was like a 3d shoot you know and of course the bull ended up ducking his arrow but it was a pretty cool scenario so i got a question for ryan so ryan um let's go back to the scenario based thing if you're chasing a bull and it seems to have a lot of satellites like you're saying does that change your tactic i mean it's not just one elk we're chasing it seems that he's got bulls challenging him whether that be you know first thing in the morning um and he's got bulls kind of pressuring the herd are you still going to try to call or are you going to basically slip in silent what's your tactic no i'm still gonna call i think uh you know i think <clears throat> if it's a bull i haven't talked to you know he hasn't heard my bugle i'm just a stranger right um 
bulls will travel that time of year. New bulls will come in. You know, I've heard folks say, well, they know every bull and they're not coming to my call because it's a call they haven't heard all summer. But I don't think that's the case. I think new bulls travel and they'll, they'll come in and, and they'll get, you know, mixed in with them. So I'll go in there and uh, not worrying about the satellite bulls. But I had a circumstance a long time ago um, where... I was working this bull and it was a frenzy of bulls. I don't know how many satellites it had. It seemed like there was 10 or 12 around this really big, you know, monster seven by eight herd bull. And I got in tight and it, I mean, the wind was bad in certain instances. There were satellites behind me downwind and they were still screaming and going nuts. But I got in tight, uh, didn't work out the first night that I got in there and um, I had him close, but just not super close. And uh, I changed tactics the next morning when I came in and got right amongst that entire herd again. And this time, instead of challenging that bull, I went in, got super tight. And with those satellites all around that bull, I did a couple cow sounds, light cow sounds. And like that scenario I painted for you before, um, I backed up a little bit and I pitched a big old challenge bugle. Um, and in 30 seconds, a nice six point came in. Well, I, it worked. It was a nice 300 inch six point, but he came in and I stuck him and not 10 seconds after I stuck him, the herd bull came in because he heard all that commotion, but he just thought, you know, and, and this is kind of why I use this tactic was that satellite came down and stole that cow. And it worked because now that monster seven by eight came right down in there and he gave me a perfect shot, but I'd already stuck this six point. And I've kind of used that same tactic over and over and over again. And that's just getting in tight, throwing a cow sound, backing up, pitching a scream. That's just one scenario that's worked for me a lot. Mm -hmm. Even with all those satellites around, it almost enhances it. It almost makes it more effective. Yeah, that's definitely something I'll, I'll use if in, say, a scenario where you bump the herd, um, herd bumps, the first thing I'm going to do is try to make it seem like a cow got left behind yeah. and a bull picked it up. Right. Because that's going to stop the whole situation real quick. Right. Let's say I got a bull to bugle me and he grunted and screamed and grunted at the end. He's got a hot cow. No doubt in my mind. He's defensive. Yeah. Now, if that if I gave a location bugle and I received a like bugle back, there's a really good chance. All he's letting me know is where the group is. There's no hot cows at all in there. And he's the only one that bugled. Nothing else returned to bugle anywhere. So, see, the odds are, and I'm playing the odds here, there's no hot cow. So, I don't want to get that aggressive with him. But bulls like building their harem or if they have or, or if it's a bull in this case we're going to say he has cows because we're talking about a herd bull here mm -hmm. and so i'm going to get him to to invite me to the group and so i'm not going to use a bugle i'm going to use a cow sound and as soon as and i usually just give two soft and one loud that's just kind of my favorite thing cows do it all the time they'll just give two soft and one loud one and usually two or three sets by then he will invite you over and call you to the group and I need him to do that because I really don't know exactly where he is. And I'm because I'm that 150, 200 yards. And once he does it, I now answer him with the sound that a cow uses that she's accepting the invite and letting him know she heard him.
So going back in those early days, you know, what were some of the mistakes you made? You know, getting getting kind of cutting your teeth and things like that. You know, what what do you think were the big your biggest mistakes? Uh, not understanding what these what's going on in mm-hmm. the herd, and the, the dynamics of the entire process in the month of September. What what is actually happening? Why are these bulls there? Why are they bugling? Why why is this all happening? And and then you know everybody wants to sell you cow calls and everybody wants to tell you how it's done right and this way and that way and do you know mating scenes and everything else like that. So the process of learning took took a while. So mm. if you're not looking at what failed before, you're not going to grow for the next time. So by taking out what is what I think caused me to fail in the past, pretty much narrowed it down to what is actually consistent and working. So going back, the mistakes you made, do you think that was just using too many cow calls? I mean, let's get into specifics like not getting close enough before you challenge. Like what are the, what are some specific things that you did wrong? I would say probably uh, being too careful, trying to finesse it too much, Mm -hmm. trying to not make a mistake is prevented you from being successful and yeah. uh, a lot of guys are afraid to charge right in on a bull because you don't want to spook them yeah so uh, just being too careful i think caused me to lose more opportunities that actually just barging right down oh, yeah. on them and you know you're you're doing your cow calls and all this and that and if you're if you're not trying new things you're not going to learn so by by doing that over the course of years and years and years it's it, it, you know, we've gotten it down to a very simple process. So, like, and like every situation is different. It's easy to say this is what you do, and you go in and, and move quick, get in close, and make it happen. And then every situation is different. I think over time you develop that gut feeling of let's hold back a minute or let's push harder, like an instinct. Yeah, and it, that's what's tough is like you know I always tell people like I don't know, just go with your gut, and that doesn't really equate. So if I tell someone that hasn't spent, it doesn't know the dynamics. Yeah, twenty years yeah. in there and have that gut instinct, or if their instinct is to be like a rifle hunter which is what the majority of everybody starts out as so when mm-hmm. that sneak in wanting to be quiet doesn't work because that's what all those elks predators are trying to do yeah that's why making noise and sounding more like an elk is <laughs> is really what you should be doing yeah but we you know when you're rifle hunting you're creeping through the woods yeah you know yeah. hoping to see something before they see you and take off yeah i know one of the mistakes i made and <laughs> just looking back so funny is like i'd always play that cautious role you know and mm-hmm. like you you not want to get too close and you come to realize and then you think an elk just moved or he he ran off or he did something wrong but in reality like when you when you understand like this bull is going to go to the top of the mountain anyway like that's what he was going to do and if you're not quick enough you're not keeping up with him you know and sometimes he's just going to do that and that was like looking back it's like so many times I would just like creep or I'd go like a hundred yards and be like cow call cow call cow call and he's doing his own thing like I'm not close enough for him to worry about he doesn't care mm-hmm. and he's doing his own thing and especially if he's got cows he definitely doesn't care if I'm 200 yards away cow calling at him maybe he'll bugle but it doesn't mean anything you know what I mean and like that so going back, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you learn those dynamics of what's happening, mm-hmm. whether that's uh, a lone bull hanging out on a hill looking for cows or whether that's a herd bull that has cows with them. And that can be, that can be tough in, its, in itself to, to kind of know whether that's a lone bull or if it's a herd bull. So what's the key to targeting a particular bull and, and finding him? Yeah, so in how we've adapted and what we've done over the years is, is figured out that I'm, I'm, I'm actually targeting a social status of an animal. This is the apex bull of that area. He's the herd bull, if you want to call him that. And he's not necessarily the biggest bull in the world, or in the woods, for that matter. And it's not a, uh, it's not an inches thing. It's of that area, of that place, he is that apex bull of that mm-hmm. herd. 
So when I approach these elk, I approach them like, okay, I'm going in to establish my territory. I'm going to become that apex bull. And he will react in the same way virtually every time. Is they're going to defend their herd, their harem, and they're they're going to come just charging right in. If you can if you can get in on him when he has got his cows bedded down and locked down, they do pretty much the exact same thing. They will meet me before I get to him. They'll hear me coming in as I'm bugling my way in, stomping, making a lot of noise, and progressing towards him. When I get close enough, he will turn. He will come to me. Whether that's a hundred, two hundred, thirty yards, depending on uh, the, you know, the environment and the, basically the sight curtain, how far they're going to get away from their cows. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it could be a two hundred fifty inch bull. It could be a three hundred fifty inch bull. But a lot of times the same thing happens. They'll meet me on my way to them. So you said you do bugle your way in. Mm-hmm. So most people say that they locate, get as close as they can, and then challenge. Yeah, but what I want to do. Let's say he's three ridges over. Mm-hmm. Okay. He answered me. I'm on my way. I get as far as I can. I hit him again because I'm, I, I want him know, to know I'm coming. Right. I don't, I want to sit there and, and bugle too much. And then it just becomes a, a yelling match, a yelling competition. And they get kind of callous to your, your calls from what I've seen. So over bugling, he just starts ignoring you. But if you do it, as you're approaching him and coming in and you're just bugling enough to get that reaction, whether it be he answers you, uh, he starts raking a tree, he's breaking brush, he's scraping the ground, you know, he's doing something in reaction to you. Um, and then that that is part of the call in. You know, I think the term calling them in is a little misleading because 90 percent of the distance or more is covered by me to him. Yeah. It's not the bull to me. Yeah. Rarely does that actually work out. You standing 400 yards away and calling a bull to you. Maybe on a spike. It does <laughs> now and then, but it's not the norm. No. No. The norm is, is, is I approach him as straight as I can do it with the wind in my favor. Obviously, you can't trick their nose. Um, if I can just keep him engaged in me, then when I get close enough, he'll come and he'll meet me. Now, when, when that happens, do you ever have them just shut up and not say anything because you're, Some, you're basically going at them? Sometimes they don't even answer. They'll just, I hear brush breaking or something. So do you, is, in that case, do you assume that that's not the apex bull, so you just move on? In that no, I mean, you can almost tell he's the apex bull by his emotion and his answers to you, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not how deep his voice is or how hoarse he is or how much he growls or grunts or chuckles or whatnot, but it, I can just feel that in his voice, and I don't know how you can really It's a statement it. versus a question. Yeah. You know, when a bull bugles and he tells it as a statement versus a question. There you go. And you'll hear a bull bugle, and he's, he's kind of just telling you where he is, and it almost sounds like a question, you know, and then there's the bull that fire that it's i'm right here you know it's the dominance thing one one's an i'm down just so you know i'm down here and the other one's like i'm down here yeah i'm right here this is is here don't come down here (laughs) and you can hear it like if you get in an area where you got five bulls bugling you can tell which one's kind of the dominant and it doesn't necessarily mean it's the growler Mm because some of those bulls will just growl and you know sounds bigger quote-unquote air quotes there but it's not necessarily bigger because it's about who's the dominant one yeah Yeah, and you know the oregon coast where i hunt most of my time there's not a ton of satellites Mm -hmm. you know satellite bulls will have you know maybe one or two cows or calves themselves so they're not like sitting there circling the herd yeah um and those big dominant mature bulls don't really tolerate that no 
So they'll run those little guys off, and they usually don't hang out. Have you hunted Rockies much? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I killed a 393-inch bull in <laughs> no Washington. Kidding. Yeah. Dang. It took me three days. Oh, that's a tough hunt. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> say so. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of fun. I did it the exact same. My approach to it was no different than, than Rosie's. So what's the, what's the secret to finding a good Roosevelt? I think miles, man. You just have to put on a ton of miles, whether that's walking down skid roads, ridge tops, uh, driving hundreds of miles of logging roads. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people glass. I tend to stay away from clear cuts because clear cuts are another one of those, like the dance party thing, right? You get a lot of vocalization going on and, and it's harder for me to pinpoint and target a specific social status of an animal when, when you got all those animals playing in that open environment. But, uh, yeah, you know, hundreds of miles of driving these logging roads, trying to find the right uh, rub or whatnot. You know, I look for a lot of rubs. Rubs. Yeah. Roosevelt, a rub means a lot because that's where he lives during September. So I can pretty much guarantee if I find a rub of a Roosevelt, that he's not far from that. Mm-hmm. How far do you think he is usually? I mean, I guess you have to. Depends on the Roosevelt. Yeah, well, you have to look at the terrain. You know, if it's 2,500 feet down to the creek bottom, he might be, you know, a mile down there. Do you think it's still possible to get away from people on the west side? Not entirely, no. <laughs> no, you're never going to get away from people. So you just, quite honestly, people don't bother me. Really? No, not at all. Um, I, I just hunt right through them. I don't change my tactics. I don't change anything up for other people. I don't just don't let it discourage me anymore. Now, when it comes to like Roosevelt's, one of the things I'll do, and this is this is tough because as pressure has gotten harder, it's almost impossible to leave a bull and expect him not to get screwed with unless he is super remote. Um, but does the temperature of that bull have any effect on when you go in? Uh, not necessarily. No, I'd say you know we hunt hard for the bulls we find. I don't I don't get a ton of answers a year. Mm-hmm. So when we get an answer, we hunt them. Yeah. Whether he answered me five minutes after I tried to locate or seconds, we're on him. Does it change? So if a bull, say just hypothetically, a bull takes 10 minutes before he locates or five minutes, whatever it is, like right before you leave and he gives you this little squeal bull bugle, are you going to try to work him up before you head down in there or are you going to just basically go at him and see if it increases on the way down? Yeah, I'm not going to alter my process for getting to him. I'm going to do the same thing. Typically, he'll get he'll get worked up. Yeah. When I when I start to do that approach and that, um, and I can only think he's thinking someone's coming into his home to take his wife, yeah, yeah. his girlfriend. So usually they they eventually just get worked up, worked up, worked up. Never are they super vocal. I mean, they don't answer every call you make. Uh, there's usually some sort of reaction. Whether, you know, rake a tree, uh, start breaking brush, doing whatever. But, uh, you know, if he answers me 10 minutes later, I'm still on him. You know, I just, there's just not enough time in a season to, and to these days it's like you get one, uh, one bull to bugle, like all out everything you have at it. Yeah. And you know, we've refined it down to, I want to hunt a specific animal. Like I find a rub that he's nine feet tall. I want to hunt that animal. So we just pick that apart and find him. So in scouting, do you use um, a lot of rubs, like sizes to kind of go off of uh, how big a bull's going to be? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, if you find a tree that the bull can't bend over, Mm -hmm. you can gauge how tall that bull's rack is. Mm -hmm. You know, if I can reach it, he's probably not, you know, a 35-inch bull. If I have to use my bow to reach the top, I know he's probably, you know, 40 plus. So, a rub tells you a lot, you know. You see a lot of little nicks way up high, he's probably got a crown on him. Yeah. 
you see gouges at the bottom, and you can see how wide how wide his eye guards are apart. Yeah, I mean it, it tells you a lot if you really analyze them. Yeah, and especially getting the right area. I mean, I've been in areas where it just completely rubbed out. Yeah, and you know what's funny is I I can think of one particular spot where. Every year, there's rubs along this road in the same spot year after year. Yeah, so it's kind of cool to see, like, yeah. that bull's been in there a long time. Yeah, why? What What is it about that spot that he's leaving rubs? There's mm-hmm. probably a saddle or there's some reason why they're coming through that spot all the time. Is there a particular feature? Like, so let's say you go back and you're like, oh, man, I got this rub. I'm going to jump on Google Earth. Like, what kind of features? Are you looking for saddles? Are you looking for north-facing with a bench on it? Like, what's your... I want a seep. I want where that creek comes out of the ground. Usually, it, even if it's a little um, offshoot, you know, a tributary of that uh, bigger creek, but these, these bulls will be in the most comfortable place mm-hmm. it'll be cool it'll be relatively flat it'll be open more often than not when i get in on a bull that's answered me you're like well how come i didn't hunt here before <laughs> no kidding you had no idea they existed yeah. but but that's why that bull is there you know so yeah without a doubt in my mind if there's a rub line i find if you want to call it a rub line there's a reason why he's he's coming through there a lot, mm-hmm. whether it's a train or something. So, yeah, when I'm analyzing the topography, those are, are the kind of things I'm looking for. Maybe big wide bottoms to a creek bottom. Usually a big wide bottom means it's probably fairly open and, and comfortable for him. Yeah. Yeah. Little benches and stuff. A lot of it you're not going to see on a, on a map. Or even through your GPS or Google Earth. But uh, once you get there, you'll say, oh, yeah, no wonder he's here. Yeah, that's, I mean, the one thing I found is that once I started calling a lot of bulls and I realized all these bulls were hanging up mid, mid mountain on a super steep hill that had a bench with a seep next to it. It was like, then you look at the Google earth and you figure out, okay, that's what that looks like. And you naked eye probably couldn't tell, but only because I'd been to one that looked exactly like that. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to repeat that on Google earth. And then I find on Google earth, I'm like, when I start finding those and you start to find that like, it's just those same areas. They're very, very similar. Those bulls like to hang mid mountain on the little, you know, like you said, that little seep, little mm-hmm. wet spot, and there'll be wallows all over it. And it's like year after year. And I found that, you know, there's one wallow that I found. I remember it used to just be chock full. You know, always had elk sign everywhere. And someone wants to kill that elk because then it was gone for two or three years. And then all of a sudden it came back, you know, it was just a different bull or something. Yep, yep. Found that area. So they do seem to like, at least in my experience, they seem to find those same areas. Yep. You know, maybe something's not there for a few years, but you It'll know, maybe back. someone killed one it. back. There'll be one there. I mean, it's just a, a an area that holds elk will always hold elk. Oh, so, and you talk to old timers yeah. and it's like, they killed elk in the same spots yeah. all the time. Cause yeah. Yeah. that's what the best, best feature you know those elk live there year-round especially roosevelt's lives in the same area year-round he's going to find those yep they're going to find that comfortable place yeah, yeah. And it's amazing too when you get to some of these canyons like in on the coast you're standing on the top of the ridge and you're like there's no way that i can make it down there but when you pick your way through it and get to the bottom and it, everything opens up yeah and it's obvious why they're there yeah. yeah, or it'll be like so brushy that you know salmon berries for the oh, first yeah. half mile off that road, and then all of a sudden it's like beautiful forest. There it is. Yeah, <laughs> you're like ah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly. why it's good to keep track of bugles and like figure like oh you know I heard a bull right there you know and just keeping track of that over yeah. the years. What time of day did I hear that bugle? Mm-hmm. As someone who hunts by themselves, um, I'll say the benefit of this situation hunting by myself is I can move whenever I want, however I want, and I know where I'm moving. You dictate everything. I dictate everything. I know what's going to happen. There is... It makes it tough um, trying to run a bugle and hold it between your legs while you're getting ready for a shot and then bugle and then, you know, like, and there's just... You don't need a bugle, too. 
No, it's true. Um, it's true. Uh, the one thing I found is that if I, what I've done, uh, what I've learned is that that gets tough because a bull, he's just playing peekaboo. And these Roosevelt's, I just play peekaboo. You know, like, I'll just see a head pop out and ah, it's like, yeah. I'm screwed. And then, you know, he'll go away and I'll bugle. He'll come back. And it's like, you won't even see him move. You're just like, oh, there's eyeballs. I see you. And like, you're just playing that peekaboo game. What I found is that if I can get him to rub, so I get him in that 50 yard range and then I start rubbing because he's going to mimic me. And then it's game on because now I can move without playing peekaboo. And so that's like, as by myself, I've really found that super well where people are going to confuse what you're talking about. Like, wait, I thought it's better to have a collar behind you. I will say if you're hunting any elk, now do you agree to like, if you're, if you're hunting, like maybe I'm going to not hunt uh, the apex bull or whatever. Um, now I'm hunting any elk. I'm doing a little more cow calling, trying to get that bull to come by. I think that may help. What do you, what do you think? I think you better make the decision on where you're going to hunt before you go in the woods. <laughs> That's a good point. Because if you go halfway through it, you're targeting that mature, that herd, that apex bull. And then oh, I'm going to throw some calculus into it. Well, now you completely changed what you were doing up. Now you're targeting all the elk versus the bull, which could care less about all the other elk. So make your mind up before you go in the woods. So how are they different? Because you and I had this conversation before, but let's explain to everyone how you, how those two are different. How hunting an apex bull first, like I just really want to kill an elk. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm going to target an apex bull, this is the dominant bull of that environment. I am going to challenge his right to breed. I'm going to get challenge his right to have those cows. And I'm going to go straight at him, trying to push him out of my now new territory. And he's going to meet me with a little bit of resistance. If he, if he's not a well-versed apex bull, he may be, you know, you know, kind of nervous about it. But he will generally, they will come in and check you out and 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 meet you before you get to where his his cows are at. Now, if I want to target the herd or satellite bulls or cows and calves, well, that's what I want to become. I want to become a satellite bull because then it's going to raise the curiosity of all the other little guys. Well, who's that little guy over there bugling all the time? I'm going to go check him out. And if I want a cow and a calf to come running in, I call. I, I become a cow or a calf. You know, every now and then you're going to kill a big bull cow, cow calling. I'm not, you know, doubting that at all. But if you want to target those big mature bulls, you have to be a big mature bull. And because when you change that up, big mature bull does not care about satellite bulls unless it's Doesn't. in his immediate threat. Yeah. Unless he's literally got to chase it off. But, and you get in these situations where, you know, he doesn't care about, you know, if he has cows, he's not really going to care too much about cows. Now, there's there's situations where he does. Like if you're a herd bull and say some cows spook or something like that, and it sounds like a you know a herd bull's running off. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys will talk about that coming in challenge, making some hyper cow calls because it make it sound like you know I snagged a cow from the herd. Mm-hmm. So you, it's like this is what we talked about. Everything boils down to understanding the storyline and what's happening and making that make sense to to what's actually happening. In the woods, right? Yeah, yeah. So elk language is very complex. Mm-hmm. I don't know it. I, I cannot interpret what they're saying, even a bugle. Mm-hmm. But I do know this about bugling and about big mature bulls: that if I scream at you and you scream back, that's probably an aggressive reaction. <laughs> and if I get closer and you scream louder, you probably are going to get mad about it. Yeah, you know. So. It's a very primitive thing, bugling. So mm-hmm. when I'm getting in close and I'm breaking brush and I'm chuckling and I'm, I'm, you know, raking trees and whatnot, that means I'm coming in to take your territory. And 
that's how they establish their 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 goal in life is to reproduce. Mm-hmm. That's all they're there for. Yeah, those bulls are there to breed as many cows in as short amount of years as they can. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go in there. I'm going to threaten that right to breed, and they will generally meet me. Do you find problems with um, having the bull meet you coming in? I mean, is it because like this peekaboo thing? And I don't know how many times I guarantee I screwed this up a lot before I realized bulls would do this, you know, and and be kind of watching me come in. That's where it gets hard to whether you move or don't move. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why a lot of guys say it's easier to get a bull to, to. cut that last distance because when you're moving in his jungle it's very hard i mean those bulls can hide very well in there do you have problems moving in on that herd when he kind of knows you're coming i'd say here on the oregon coast or you know the roosevelt's your your sight window is never more than like 35 or 40 yards yeah so if if i can get that close to him he's gonna usually come to me that last few steps just enough for me to get a shot Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we're talking east side you don't have that ability to get that close you have to be a little bit more i'd say finesse they calling him in um but you know the, um, these big mature bulls when when i'm barging down on them they when i get close enough they barge right back at yeah me. i think that talking about us not having collars set up your last bugle you move mm-hmm. so that last point he thinks is actually further away yep and, but now you're coming in so then that's when when you say meet generally what we do is find that we meet them in that middle distance and we can by that point you can hear them coming in they can't be quiet no it's virtually impossible well they purposely aren't quiet no and if you watch some of my videos and bull i killed uh, 2015 uh he is breaking brush with his horns as he's walking through mm-hmm. he's not throwing his head back sliding he's through it. it he's leaning into it he's purposely trying to sound as loud and as intimidating as he possibly can mm-hmm. be so i wouldn't say i necessarily go out of my way to mimic that as i'm heading to him but I definitely don't try to be quiet. No. So it's loud. You know, if I'm coming in loud and storming in, I want him to know I'm coming. Yeah. And he will typically meet. Because that's what happens in the woods. That's, that's what, what exactly that's what happens. They, they pose loud. and they, they you know. Yeah. Show if you were there to hear it, that's what you would hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You see, this is where guys go wrong. They're hoochie momming or, or they're staying with just regular social cow talk. That is the wrong move right there. Okay. So, so here's a, here's a, here's a normal cow sound that you'll hear. That's just standard. Okay. That is not the sound a cow will use when the bull t- tells her to come on over and she's saying, yes, I will come over there. Basically is what she's saying. Here's the sound she uses right here. That's what she does. And she gets very rapid with it. And she repeats it as she makes her way to him. And she's cracking, banging. You don't have to be quiet. All you need is the wind and the cover. And this obviously is more in timbered country, not in open sagebrush where they're looking right at you. You need the cover and you need the wind in your favor. And as you keep going and you get closer, that bull will get more excited and more excited. And, and he, he's just continually calling you to him. He's giving you the exact spot he's standing. He is not intimidated, nothing whatsoever. And we have done this I don't even know how many times. Call ourselves right straight to the herd bull. And so what's the good thing about doing it with the herd bull? 
he doesn't come your way. He anchors and stays right there. So what's, um, I mean, as far as like your overall strategy, talk about kind of a little bit, like what's your, what's your strategy and maybe what do you do differently? Um, just throughout the main part of the season, not just early season, but throughout, you know, starts picking up, you know, kind of what's your strategy, what's your go-to, um, tactic, I guess. So I, we, I try to cover a lot of ground, you know, like, like we were talking earlier. I mean, I just, we move all the time. I don't, I don't focus on any one area unless I have a really good reason to. So, you know, that's, I, I think that's probably what's, what's held me back from being like the, the hardcore backcountry guy, you know, that and my job, um, is it's, it's really easy to get in my pickup if they're not, if they're not going off, if I can't locate a bull in the Beale unit, I can fly down the road a half hour and be in, you know, the Sumter desolation or, wherever, you know, or be clear over in the Eagle camps or something like that in the new country, you know? And I guess just, I mean, like I said, I bugle a lot. So I'm, I'm always throwing out that locator bugle all the time. And, uh, um, either they hear me or they don't, and I don't waste a bunch of time trying to, to drum something up out of an area. If I can't find something, then I move, you know, will you circle so. back and will you circle back on an area? Say you, you're covering as much ground as you can and you, you run your call sequence, your locator call sequence, and you don't find anything. Will you come back the, you know, a day later or a couple of days later and just keep hitting all the same areas? Well, like I said, you know, uh, last year, um, we got into that bowl and we had actually hunted through the area that I ended up finding him in, you know, when we started our hunt, we went through there, nothing answered. When we were coming back to the vehicle, we kind of hit that same basin again and he was there and he hammered us, you know? So, um, but absolutely. Um, I have, I've got a spot that we hunt quite regularly and we'll make a hunt through it in the morning. And if we didn't drum anything up, we still might go back through there that evening because I mean, if they're cycling, through an area, like say they're there for, you know, a two day period or, you know, a 24 hour period. And then they circle somewhere else and maybe they're going to be back there in a day or two, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, it pays off sometimes. It really does. Especially in that like five to 10, five, fifth through the 10th of September. Cause you got bulls that are just absolutely covering ground and, and they'll very vocal, you know, like you, that's where you can hit that cow call a couple of times before you locate bugle and just get a bull to pipe off. That wasn't there that morning. Like you said, a couple hours earlier, he's just running yep. ridges, canyons, and he's, you know, cruising, looking for those cows. Um, yeah, that time frame, Yeah. I would definitely hit the same spots yep. over and over again. You know, one thing I was going to ask you, you were talking about being yep. mobile. Do you think guys get too romantic about the back country hunt and, uh, too focused on getting way back in there? You know, I, I just know it's not for me, but, you know, I think that if that's what really inspires them and drives them and that's what they look forward to, you know, I'm totally down with it. It's just, you know, it's, I think it's mainly been for me anyways, it's never been something that I, I had the time or energy to be able to put into it. And, you know, once, once I, once I was, I started hunting with my father-in-law just the mobility and all the places that 
that he was able to go and take me and teach me. I just, I just like that variety, I guess. Cause I mean, we hunt the, you know, the breaks into the high desert, clear up, you know, to 7,000 feet and you can get all that done in a two day period, which yeah. is really cool to me. Yeah. I, I think, um, one of the things I think people would be surprised about, you know, getting into elk hunting and whatnot is how much ground some guys cover. Like it's nothing for me to be 50 miles away from camp. Like if I'm, you know, where I hunted in Idaho for a number of years, it was kind of like, I, I would be 50 miles away hunting something else. I'm like, I'm just going to sleep in my truck tonight. Cause I don't want to drive 50 miles back through back roads and like just covering ground. No, that's, that's, that's just, like I said, that's what I like. I've taken a couple backcountry trips. Um, I think the longest one was uh, nine days and we went horseback and I really enjoyed it. But the crappy part about it was, is we got into that area and it was a big area. You know, we had several giant basins and a lot of just different terrain up there, but the elk just were not cooperating, but we were there, you know? So we spent spent eight or nine days. Well, it is. And that's that, like I said, that's what I like about, you know, I guess hunting closer to home or, or hunting the more accessible country. I mean, you got to put up with more people, but at the same time, there's, there's so many options and you know, those people aren't getting to all the elk. So yeah. Does number of people discourage you or you not worry about, or you try to stay out of areas like that? If you're seeing a lot of guys on the roads and, and you know, you you know how it is, you'd be cruising areas and like, man, there's people everywhere. Does that discourage you from an area or no? Um, the vehicles on the road, they, they don't bug me at all. Um, they used to, it used to, until I saw, you know, what was actually going on. Because I mean, there's a lot of dudes that, that just, that, you know, the guys that drive and shut off the rig and then bugle and then start it and drive. Um, there's, we drive around the same roads and we just look at the banks, look for, you know, banks that are tore up with elk tracks. I mean, if there's elk tracks there, there's elk there whether there's people driving around or not. And we, you know, we gamble on it. You don't get a guy in there that's, that's in there to kill him and he's, he's working it, but you know, not all the time. So, I mean, I killed in 2011, I killed a, it was my biggest bull at the time. I killed him about 400 yards from one of the big, you know, the main ATV type trails. Yeah. So, I mean, I had to, pa- I had to pack him literally 400 yards and put him on an ATV and drive him out. <laughs> and there was four wheelers going by while we were bugling. So, I mean, it's no, you know, I, I don't think the elk care that much because it's something they hear, you know, throughout the summer anyways, because people are out doing whatever. And, yeah. um, it's worked out pretty good in the past and other times, you know, it's just like anything else that, it can suck. And if it does suck, then you move. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like, I have always, I said this before is like hunt where the elk are, not where you think they are. Um, and it's so true. Those elk Mm -hmm. can be next to the road. We hunted a bull, we call him chatty Cathy and he lived in this hellacious Canyon and we chased him for two or three days and literally just couldn't keep up with him. He would just he'd bugle, 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 just keep going and going and going. And, uh, we lost him one day and, doing the laps looking for him looking for him and that night we're up there and 
get him to talk and he's cleared the head of this canyon right below this camp. And I'm like, that's not a very good spot for him, but whatever, <laughs> hunt where he is, you know, and there's a camp 150 yards away. I don't know. I'm like, they're going to hear him. They're going to hunt him in the morning. Dang it. And, uh, so we get there just before a light and he was at the top of this, um, top of this drainage and I pipe one off and he bugled probably 120 yards behind the truck across the main road. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And <laughs> as soon as we got him to talk, he wouldn't shut up. So I can't start to pick up. I can't do anything. And my window's like half cracked and he is just piping off every minute and a half, just going to town. I'm like, just shut up. Just stop <laughs> talking right now. And, I know. and a yep. truck goes by and like this truck is going <laughs> super slow. Bull bugles the whole time. I mean, he had to been, 80 yards from this bull and this truck goes by super slow. Guy never heard it or anything. And we ended up, uh, no way. Yeah. We ended up sticking that bull, um, just over the hill. Like I was my buddy. I just said, Hey, keep him talking. Cause the day before I could, every time I get close to him, he just started wandering. And so I was like, you just keep him talking. I'm going to slip in there. And so sure enough, he just bugled a few more times and we slipped down the hill, shot him. And he was, man, he ran up to the road and I think he was, maybe a hundred, 150 yards from the road, real tough back out. So you know how that goes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hey, you take them yeah, and you can well, get them. You know, my wife shot, exactly. My wife shot a bull uh, in 2015. Uh, I think it was uh last day or second to last day of the season. Um, and he actually, he took us off the ridge and he went across the main road and then he kind of paralleled the road back to where we camp and where she shot him and where he died was a hundred yards from that main road. I mean, it was, and there was, there was, there was rigs driving by all day long, you know? So it, I don't, I think once they hit a certain point in the rut, you know, and not all areas and not all bulls, but I think once they hit a certain point, if they're, they're hot, they're hot. I ran over a cattle guard one time and I parked on the other side and I think the noise from the cattle guard made a bull bugle up the road about a hundred yards. So I don't know. <laughs> well, it's like the, you know, guys will talk about, uh, bulls not being with moo cows and I've, you know, hunted the bulls that were literally just running through the, the cattle and like just in cattle country mm -hmm. and yep. never phased them at all. So I don't know. No, yeah, you can't trust elk. That's a my, that's one of my father-in-law's sayings. They have legs, and you can't trust them. I like the guys that uh, try to say, like, why don't you just pattern them like whitetail? Good luck with that. And now if that bull's coming at me, I'm stopping and setting up because I know I'm going to bring him the rest of the way. Yep. But on a hurt bull, he's anchored. And so I have to take the game to him, and he'll let me do that. He'll let me go, I mean, under 20 yards. As long as he doesn't see me, I can crack pop. I usually will call like that, Cody, until I get 40 yards. That's when I stop, just so listeners know what we're doing. We usually stop at the 40-yard mark. No more calling. That's when I knock an arrow right there. I do not knock an arrow before that. And run through the woods, bang, 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 hit and kick and things because I'm, maybe I'm just getting older and wiser and I don't – my broadheads are really nasty sharp. I'm, I'm a real <laughs> sharp I'm – a, I'm a Nazi for sharpening, man. I mean I want things so razor sharp. When they hit that animal, there's no pushing aside. It cuts everything it comes in contact with. So that's when I knock my arrow at 40 yards and now I don't call anywhere but I have my reed in my mouth. 
because I may have to stop or turn the bull or do something. And, and if I do, I'm going to have to hit him with a nervous grunt. And that is my, my number one sound to, to get an action out of him. But I'm going to hit that 40 yard and I'm going to move in and I'm going to try to wiggle around. And the nice thing about that, I can tell you that in, I would say probably 80, maybe even higher, 80% of the times when I'm using that, the bull starts raking once I get close. And why does he do that? He's showing off for me. He's displaying mm. for me. And yeah. why? He doesn't know who that cow is. He knows all the cows in his group and a lot of them in his area by their sound. They've been there forever. But when he hears you or me, he doesn't recognize that sound. So he knows it's a new cow. It's something new that moved around, came from wherever. Elk get pushed around all the time. And so now he starts displaying for her. And the other cows can start chirping away. And he won't even make a sound. He doesn't say anything to him. Nothing. He already knows him. But me, every time I make a sound, man, he's right on me. And he's encouraging me to come. And now he's raking and raking. And that's what I usually see as I'm coming in. I see just little flickers. And I can hear him raking and rubbing and rubbing. And that's my cue. I got to get in. I got to get to a spot where I can make the shot. So do you do you think it's worse to to pass on a bull and go home empty-handed or to chase a bull the entire season? I mean, if I could chase one bull for the entire season and continue to have interaction with him, I would do that. <laughs> um, you know, it, because it, it's there. It's like it, he's there. If you can continually have encounters and and he doesn't blow out of the area and you can keep pushing and keep on him, yeah, and extend your season That'd be awesome. Um, yeah, I've never really sure. had like the regret. I mean, there's been a couple times where you know I passed on bulls and ended up finding the bull I wanted. And usually, I'll pass on a bull if I, there's one bull I'm after, and you know, end up chasing him for a week and just run out of time. Like, I don't think I've ever really been like, dang it, I should have shot that, you know, that rag six the first day or something like that. To me, it's just like I love spending the entire week or entire two weeks just chasing out. Like that's, I, I have a hard time pulling the trigger cause I don't want the season to be over. Like legitimately, if a bull steps out opening morning, uh, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough call. Cause it's like, I, I'm not ready for this to be over. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. I just, um, man, I love that meat Yeah, it's true. I want to make sure I get some meat in the freezer and you know, anymore, uh, you, usually there's a couple hunts lined up throughout the year. So for me, Washington is more of an opportunist type situation. If I get a bull to come in on the first day, I'm probably going to take him. I'll, uh, I like to, one of my favorite things to do is pack that thing out by myself really? and just spend that time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I like that. The pain of it and the, like the suffering and the, you know, just beating yourself up. And the accomplishment it, of it though. Yeah. When you're done, man, there's, there's nothing like it in the world, you know, driving home, big rack on the back of your truck and a giant cooler full of meat and you did it all by yourself. And, uh, I don't know. There's just something about it, man. It's, it's so addicting. There's nothing like it in the world for sure. So I got a question when you were, you know, you're chasing him up the hill. Were you trying to sound bigger than him or were you trying to sound smaller than him? Like what was it got, that got him turned, do you think? Do you just because you pressured him long enough or was it 
uh, the distance? Like, or was it just because you sounded big enough? What do you think that made him turn? Yeah, I don't know if I sound any, you know, big enough, but maybe just the the pressure, like, like this bull isn't going to stop. So he finally, you know, felt like, I think if I would have just stayed back and tried to try to have that exchange with him and not attacked, like not went after him, I just think they would have, they just would have went up the valley and disappeared. But, um, the fact that I was able to get all the way to the other side, like fairly quickly, like an elk would, like a bull would. Yeah. And then fly up that other side, almost running at times, you know, cause I could hear him. So I knew where he was. I, I didn't have to worry about blowing him out. Um, I stepped on every branch I could. And that's all stuff that Ryan, you know, those are all tactics that I've learned from Ryan. Um, you know, he, he was doing the archery thing before I was, I was still muzzleloader hunting and, you know, just sounding like a big angry bull that wasn't going to stop. He eventually was going to have to turn around and fight or lose his cows. Yeah. No, I think, that, I don't know. I mean, no, I'm not an huge. expert, but I, I 100% agree. Like you hear so many people talk about like, Oh, I knew what enemy just turned and ran. And like, it's hard to keep up with elk. And I think a lot of people, if you're not in super good shape, you're trying to follow a bull and say you're bugling. But if that bull just thinks you're a little bull, he doesn't care. He's just going to keep going, doing his thing. Like you're not an immediate yeah. threat to him. And, and it's hard to be an immediate threat when you're trying to chase elk that walk as fast as you run. And like so yeah. many times I'm just running, running, running and running. Just trying to, like you said, smashing everything. I want him to know I'm coming for him. And yep. like I've pushed bulls so far and I don't know, I used to have a theory that a bull will take me where he wants to battle. And because I'd have, there was a bull that he would, there was a couple of days in a row, he would do the exact same thing and he would get to the same bench and he'd turn around. And to me, it was like, oh, he just wants to go play on that bench because that's his, that's where his home ground, he knows his, he can put his cows here and they're going to stay there. Um, yep. And so I used to have that theory and I, I do think there's some truth to that, but I also think that like, a, you have to be big enough to be a threat to him if you're going to chase him up the draw and you have to be fast enough to be a threat. So like, yeah. like you know, be within your shot. Whereas if you're just like trying to mosey on up the canyon, bugling on your primos bugle, like he doesn't care. It's not a threat to him. No. And I, I like that. I, I like the, um, you know, I could probably be more successful even cow calling or something. Um, you know, guys are guys do really well with different calling strategies, but man, I want to, I want to fight him. I want to get, that's what's the most exciting thing, right? Like you, that whole interaction, um, when it works out and that bull comes in and you win and, and you get him, it's like, I just, I remember after I shot him, I just laid back and I was like, holy cow, you know, the the last two or two and a half hours just flew by like I like it was ten minutes, you know. Dude, I'm so pumped right now. Uh, that that story gets me pumped. That's exactly what every it's like like the perfect situation where you challenge that bull and push him and push him, and then he comes out, you know, and finally you get him to come away from his cows and try to fight you. That's awesome. What a cool story and a cool bull to, to boot. Oh man. Yeah. I, 
I look at him every day and I'm just like, well, if I never kill another bull, I got, <laughs> I got him to look at every day. He's right there in my living room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I drew a, a blue mountain tag in 2014. So I got to spend a lot of days down there and play with a lot of elk. Um, and I had some, uh, I think I, I got so much experience, you know, calling in bulls during scouting. And then once the season started and I really wanted to hold out and, you know, make that tag count. And I had so much fun, man. I, I chased a bull there further than I I've ever, ever thought I would. And that, that bull had like 12 cows and, uh, and I'd snuck in, I could hear him down in this bottom in a creek bottom and there was real heavy, dark timber. And I was able to just kind of use the trees and sneak my way down the hill to where I was within about 80 yards of him. Nothing that I could take a shot through the trees. It wasn't that clear, but I'd heard him in there a couple days before. And, uh, so once I got into position and I think in this situation, I might've gotten a little bit too close for the terrain and being up so far uphill above him, like straight above him. And I started to call and man, he gathered up those cows and ran, ran away. And I knew he didn't smell me. Um, and they ran straight up the next, you know, big mountain. So I just ran to the bottom and started running behind him. And I think he went up and over down into another valley up and going up that one. I caught up to his cows. He was, he was a probably 500 yards in front of his cows, just screaming constantly like bugle, 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 bugle screaming, but going away straight away from me. And I hadn't seen how big he was, but he sounded like a big bull. And I caught up to his cows, so I slowed down. And when they went over the hill, I ran. I got to the top of that one. And when we went down the next one, it was a much shorter valley. So they hit the bottom as I was at the top, and they were probably only 150 yards away, the cows. He was in front of them. And I so I got to the bottom. I ran up, and I started calling again. And I knew that I was, I'd closed the distance to his cows to maybe, maybe a hundred yards. When he heard me bugle and I was that close to his cows, immediately I heard his bugle louder because he turned and he ran Cody. Like, I don't know how far out he was, but I could hear him running and he's coming and he's coming. And like within seconds, he was standing right uphill from me. And I had to, I heard him coming through the tree. So I laid down. I didn't have any cover. I just laid down on the ground with my muzzleloader aimed up. And he came out at like 34 yards or something right above me, straight on. And, uh, he was a good bull, man. He was a six by seven. Um, but he just wasn't, I still had plenty of days. So, um, you know, I had like, take the shot, take the shot or don't take the shot. And he, he quickly turned when he didn't see a bull and boogied. And, uh, I was kind of like sitting there going, boy, that was a cool thing that just happened. I wonder if I should have shot that bull. 
And, uh, and then, you know, I ended up going off and, uh, and find another, a better bull. But the other guy who had that tag in that unit, after I shot my, um, the day before I shot my bull, he asked me if, if he could go in after that bull, like, where was he? And I told him where he was, he went in and killed him. So I got to see him and I got a picture with, you know, the guy, Steve and his bull and my bull. So another just crazy experience where, you know, chasing that bull, man, just chasing him down, trying, trying to anyway, luckily being able to keep up with him in that country. And, uh, I think the key in that situation was he got further away from his cows than I did. And as soon as he realized that there's no way he's not turning around and going back. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the tricky part to that is like, I get nervous bugling it when cows are that close. I've just had that where I bugled and it just spooks the cows. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a toss up though. I mean, it could go either way easily, easily sure. go either way. But yep. I think that's one of those things where, you know, it depends on cover because if you bugle, you're still, the cow's going to look and if they don't see elk, then it could be game over. But if you got enough concealment or, you know, it looks like, Hey, there could be a bull behind some trees right here, then you could probably all right. But yeah, I do think hands down, like chasing a bull down and just picking a fight is a good way to go. Especially if you got a hot bull and you know, you can tell he's ready to fight. Even if he's running away from you, like he yeah. may be just following, maybe the cows are moving and he's just following him. I chased a bull one time, man, just ridge after ridge after ridge. They would not stop. And every time, I mean, he was at the back of the, the cows were just going and he was like at the very back. And every time he'd get to the top of the ridge and he'd turn her back around and bugle and bugle and bugle and bugle. And he's looking at his cows and his cows would get, you know, a hundred yards away and he'd run and catch up with them. And he's just talking the whole time. And he wanted to fight. He just wasn't going to leave those cows to do so. And so, you know, he just, Every time you get to a top of a ridge, I could see him on the next little roller and he'd turn and just scream at me and scream at me. And I'm trying to catch up, but they were cruising. It's tough to keep up with elk. I mean, you have it to is. run. And so a lot of times when you set up bugling and do an advertising type bugling, you will have cows come running in and they're making that sound. You ought to hear it when there's six to eight, nine of them all making that chirp. I mean, it's just crazy as they're coming in. I've had same kind of cows come in and never make a peep. They just show up, but they're stomping and banging and hitting everything as, as they're coming in. So I always tell guys when you're going to use that sound or you're going to slip in on a bull, be as noisy as you want. Crack. I mean, reach out and break things as you're going to the bull, letting him know, because when you start sneaking and he knows something's wrong, there there is something not right. So be an elk when you're out there, you know, play it up, make the sounds. Blah, 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 but it will up your odds. And if you want to kill that herd bull, when you got three or four satellites screaming around, have the herd bull answer you. And what's going to happen, guys, when you're out there and you hear two or three more bulls bugle every time you cow call, don't answer those guys. Don't respond to them. Only respond when the herd bull responds. Let If you watch real cows when they do this and they're making their way to a bull, they choose a bull. They choose them by their sound. They're not answering every bull out there that's screaming. No. 
when her, her bull says something, she answers him and lets him know. She it, it gives him the confidence and lets him know who which one she's choosing. Yep. And so as she makes her way to him, I'm telling you, cements things and makes it real. And that's so important on over-the-counter hunts. It's not just answering everything out there because you're so excited and you hope just anything shows up. Mm-hmm. But when you're after the herd bull, make it personal. Answer him only. Let the other guys answer. Talk all they want, but only answer him as you make your way right to him. Those things along life's life's path just kind of change the way that I do things. But uh, it's always that it's always the pursuit of the challenge. I, I love uh, just challenge. And so if it's if it's a if it's the challenge I'm after, and that's the bowl that I end up with at the end of the year, I have no regrets. I mean, it's just like oh, that's what I was after. That's what fulfilled my hunt for the year. So yeah, it, it's exciting for me. It's interesting that you say that. And it's funny, you, you know, I always like to look at, at people who are where I want to be or, or further along in the path. And, you know, what are, what are they doing or what are they looking for in a hunt or what are they looking for in life and all those things? Because inevitably that's the progression or the path that we're all going to take. Right. And we talked yeah. a lot about people. I think a lot of people get into elk hunting for the meat. Maybe that's a story they tell themselves. Maybe it is true. Maybe they really do. And like, I think it's a good start. I think it's what gets you started. You're like, Hey, I kind of want to harvest my own meat. And so you go elk hunting and then you realize it's like, it's so much bigger than that. And I, I mean, to me at this point in my life or my career, whatever, like, yeah, the meat's great, but I could do it a hell of a lot easier than going 12, 15 miles back in the back country and killing myself. Uh, and so, you know, we, we all get started on the meat train and I think it's, you know, it's abnormal. It's, I guess, for me, I think it's a lot of people tell themselves that that's how they justify it. But when you really get out there and you have these experiences, you're looking for those experiences. And I think those kind of progress and you get to this point in life where you want to kill the biggest bull. And, and that's like, cause that seems like the hardest challenge. And then mm-hmm. naturally it's funny to see that same progression of where you're at to where you're like, it's just the why, you know, or the how, I guess more importantly than the why it's like, it's like how it's done. It's, it, like last year, I remember there was a couple of times I called in five points and I was by myself and it was just, I, it was cool to do, but I, I didn't need to pull the trigger. It wasn't, you know, it just wasn't that perfect situation. It didn't feel like what I wanted the how to be. And yet I have, you know, I've passed on a lot of bulls and there was a time last year where there's a 270 bull that I chased for three or four days before I ever got to even look at him. And I would have smoked him in a heartbeat because he just gave me so much challenge and was just that particular circumstance where I was like, man, I would, if I get a shot, he's going down. And, you know, it's just like the how becomes interesting and or like it becomes a big part of, you know, why we do it and what pushes us. But I do think, like you say, like to me, the challenge and pushing myself right now is definitely a big part of that. And I think that's kind of why I like chasing big bulls. It's not that it's like, any kind of measurement of all of anything. It's just, that's what is hard. And that's what pushes me. It's like finding big bulls, whether it's like not even during the season, it's preseason. Like there's so much that goes into finding those big bulls. And then once then, you know, September comes and the game just gets started. And now it's like trying to kill the biggest bull in the unit. That's, 
you know, super challenging and it takes a lot of effort. So yeah, it's interesting you say that. I could definitely see that progression in so many hunters. I guess, is there any advice you'd give yourself, uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, getting into bow hunting, I guess probably more than that, but any, what advice would you give your first time bow hunting self? Oh boy. Be patient. (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I found in my earlier years, most of the animals that were lost were lost to, uh, that moment when you had to draw and everything was, everything is right there in front of your face. And all you had to do is make the draw and, uh, he got picked out. And I think, I think most of the time, most of my, most of my animals got away because I didn't draw soon enough. So I pick all that kind of stuff out long before it ever happens. I already kind of know, okay, when he gets there, I got to draw. If he hangs up, I'm going to have to hang on for a while. And, but, uh, just just being patient um i know or in my earlier years you know i used to force shots because i'm thinking oh no this is going to be it it's either now or never and uh now when i'm where i am now in my hunting thing um i'm a lot more patient it's just like you know what i'll wait for the perfect shot the perfect shot will happen and most of the time it materializes never try to force anything um i i haven't wounded an animal in I don't even know when the last animal I wounded that I didn't get. I mean, it's been over a decade. I mean, it's just, it's been forever. Cause it's just a lot of times I used to just think, Oh no, I need to, if I don't do it now, it's not going to happen. Then you get all nervous. And yeah. Uh, but, but generally, I mean, if you just be patient, the opportunity opens up and um, I mean, I've had, especially when you get to that point to where you don't have to shoot something, then you get to realize how patient you can be. Um, I remember several occasions when I said, man, 20 years ago, man, I'd already shot this bull and now he's five yards away from me or three yards away from me, or I can reach out and touch him. He's that close, you know, Mm -hmm. just like, yeah, I could have been so much more patient. Now you, you learn a lot when you start passing up on out (laughs) because last year, that's exactly it. Yeah, exactly. And I don't wonder if it's like this, subconscious vibe that goes out when an elk, you know, isn't going to, when you're not going to shoot it. I mean, last year I called in this little five point and then when he first started coming in, I was like trying to peek the camera around to take a picture of him. And then he just kept coming and the shots just kept getting better. And pretty soon I'm like videoing this bull and he's just sitting there barking at me, just a little five point, but he's just barking Mm -hmm. at me and has no idea what I am. And I'm full on talking to the camera, looking at it like, man, (laughs) Sometimes I've gotten to where I got, you know, 50, 60 yards and it's, there's a little bit of an opening and I'm like, I can't get through the opening. So there's a couple of things I fall back on there, Cody. It's either, do I want to stay with the cow sound? Because if I break through the opening, there's a chance he might see me or one of his cows or a spike. You never know what. So it's really a dangerous thing to say, well, I'm going to blast through that 25 year yard opening and just hope for the best. No, what I start doing then is I'm going to bring him in the rest of the way. That's what I'm going to do. And I usually start with the simplest course. It's like if something goes wrong with your engine, don't rebuild it because your alternator went out. (laughs) Do the minor things. 
try to fix those first. And if it leads to something more serious, that's the way it goes. But so this is what I do with the calling. Go straight to the contact buzz. And why? The contact buzz asks the other elk that you're talking to to come over to you. You see, it's just like if your kid was out in the woods and you're talking to him and you're going, hey, I'm over here. And then you say, hey, no, I want you to come over here now. Come over where I'm at right here. You see, you've, it's an action that the other individual or your hunting partner, whatever it is, you've now told him or asked him to come over where you're at. You're not both just talking, blah, 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 I'm talking, but I'm not asking an action. Well, the contact buzz now asked the bull to come over to you. I've made it this far. You come the rest of the way. So, And that's this sound. And that's what she'll do. And sometimes she'll throw a few whines in with it. But the point is, the bull knows what she's saying. It's communication. She is now saying she wants him to come the rest of the way. An old friend of mine who actually recently passed away uh, is just a an excellent bow hunter, just a gangster of his of his time. A guy named Ray Alt uh, said to me one time when we were going elk hunting, and he said, "You know, there's a time to let it happen, and there's a time to make it happen." Mm-hmm. And you know, in bow hunting, that just couldn't be any more true. I think the successful bow hunters do a good job of of differentiating when it's it's time to make it happen or when it's time to let it happen. Sometimes you have to sit back and let it happen or, or it won't happen. And sometimes you got to put your foot on the gas pedal and go. How do you know the difference? How do you know the difference? It's, you know, I, it's hard to say. I mean, time experience instinct, it all go, it all goes into it. Uh, and, and just because you, you did it on the right time last year, doesn't mean you're going to do it Mm -hmm. right this year. Um, I think that's one of the cool challenges about it is, you know, you could kill a 400 inch bull this year um, and next year it doesn't matter. You got to, you know, it's a different mission. It's a different challenge. Um, obviously all that experience adds up and, and can help you make better decisions, but it's still, you got to be up to the challenge each and every time, every yeah. single day. So, so let's talk mega bull behavior. And when I say mega bull, like I'm talking, we could just say all 350 plus bulls each we year. Can, we can take it up a notch from there. 400 plus want. bulls. We just, you want to talk mega bulls. Let's go 380 at least. Okay. So, three, three, like 60 is pretty mega bull to me. So I'm, I just moved from Oregon. I'm not new to the Montana. It's a different scale system. It's like a metric for a standard. It's a sliding scale. <laughs> uh, but I want to talk mega bull behavior because I think you've probably watched as many mega bulls for more hours than anyone I've ever talked to. So this is like, I want to like just dive into behavior and characteristics. Like what do they do differently? You know, what have you learned? Yeah. I mean, it seems like some, sometimes the big old bulls, it could be just the product of where they're at. You know, um, sometimes it's that they're different. Um, there's been some giant bulls that I've followed that I just absolutely cannot figure out what the hell they're doing for certain parts of the year. You know, you just, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's part of why they're the way they are. Yeah. Um, and other giant bulls that I've uh, found and watched, um, they do exactly what all the other younger bulls are, uh, are doing. And, and those young bulls are probably going to be giant bulls someday too, because what they're doing is, is, um, you know, it's, it's reflect that's their behavior, uh, where they live, um, where they feed, where they bed, where they go from this spring to summer, to fall, to winter. Uh, how they transition around is what's keeping them old. So it, it may not necessarily be that individual bull's behavior, um, 
whereas it's just more of a product of his environment. So, so part of it's finding those environments um, where that herd of elk or that pocket of bulls could exist and behave a certain way uh, to be able to evade being killed for a long period of time. Or sometimes it's, it's a great big bull is just different. Sometimes they're a little kooky. So how much different do you think you see a lot of these big bulls, how many, you know, how much, how different do they act just from within each other? Um, I mean, they all kind of do similar things. No, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, they, they kind of all have their own thing, you know, it, in the summertime, they're, I mean, it's just like us hanging out, just a bunch of pals. <laughs> and then, uh, come about August 15th, it's like ghost town, you know, um, they all kind of go their, their separate ways. Um, and then you get into late August, early September and you start seeing, you know, some of the up and comers trying to assert themselves, uh, with the cows and a lot of times you'll see those big bulls kind of just laying back that time of year going, you know, just, I'm, I'm going to wait. But I mean, God forbid, if there's a hot cow, look out. Cause he's, he's coming to take over. Oh, really? Um, you know, most times, um, the big bulls that I've watched, uh, are, are supremely dominant. I mean, their, their bodies are much bigger. The racks are much bigger. Uh, the attitude, everything about them is just, I mean, they're the alpha. Yeah. You know, so, and, and I think that's kind of part of that, that, maybe they could be a little more laid back early on because it's just like, they know, they know, you know, they're having to sit back. It's just the old bull and the young cow, you know? Yeah. One's going to run down. And, yeah. You know. So how much of that, when it comes into scouting, you know, obviously it's going to be a lot easier to pick up these bulls. In summertime, you're scouting super hard from basically June through August, just trying to locate these bulls, even though you pretty much have a kind of dialed in, right? Uh, you know, I have certain pockets that I've got dialed and then every year I'm, I'm pushing into new areas and trying mm-hmm. to figure new shit out. And, um, yeah, I mean, and actually it kind of blows my mind that, that it's not done more, I guess. I mean, I don't know what other people are doing, but I'm not seeing them. So, you know, who knows, but it, it's actually not, I mean, you, you cover a lot of ground, um, trying to find bulls in the summertime. Uh, a, a lot of the areas I hunt, they're going to move a long ways from where they're at in the summer to where they're going to rut and where you can hunt them. Um, which sometimes is great because a lot of times where you're watching them feeding in the summer, you can't hunt there. Um, well, that's what I'm saying. Like is this is kind of what I was going to get to is, is when you find those bulls in the summer, I mean, a lot of people are going to say, well, that's pointless because you know, those bulls could be 30 miles away in that right. country. Re- realistically, 30 miles away. You have no idea where that bull is going to go. So easily why is it prudent to scout in July? Um, for me, it's just cataloging. You know, I'm trying to find the biggest bull in the world. You know, hopefully he's here in Montana. You know, <laughs> at minimum, I'm trying to find the biggest bull in Montana. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so for me, I'm just cataloging. And, and now that I've been doing it for a few years, um, you know, I, I've got pictures from every summer um, for the past four years. And I'm recognizing bulls. And I'm saying, okay, this one's putting on this much. You know, so I'm just, I'm trying to keep track, um, maybe watch the growth. I'm, I'm trying to find bulls that I really want to kill that I haven't killed yet. Um, and I'm just kind of, you know, last year on July 2nd, I found a bull that was well over 400 inches. Um, and I knew where he was going to go during the season. And I mean, he still had some growth left and, but I knew where he was going to go to rut and how did you know, just from being experienced, spending time down there? Yeah. I mean, I'd seen him the year before and I just, I knew him. Um, and I saw him and he just, you know, he'd blown up and it was, I mean, the second of July, he was, he was pushing four ten, um, God. just a giant typical. And, uh, you know, and I, I knew where he was going to be. 
uh, come bow, bow season. Well, a lot of guys might have just said, cool, I'm going to hang it up here. Yeah. Or, or maybe just keep watching him and wait till season. Um, but I kind of kept pushing. I kept looking. Uh, and I eventually I found a bull that was much bigger. <laughs> so, um, you just got to – that's why I go in the summer. I mean, I, I'm trying to find you – know, I, I think they're, they're, they're easier to find in the summer. And they're going to move. Sometimes they don't. Um, but if you spend enough time in that depends country – Depends on where the cows and you, are and, you know, and all that. You know the elk. It's just, a, you know, days yeah. in the field. You kind of – I mean, it's just um, – you know, you, you lay the trap, uh, you know, at first it's a, it's a big noose and you just start tightening it little mm-hmm. by little, tighten that noose. And, you know, by the time season rolls around, you're getting pretty close to. So seven. when it comes to August, you know, these basically when they go hard horn, once a bull gets yeah. hard horn, what's your, is your scouting change? Or are you just kind of like trying to figure out what they're, where they're going with their Like still working on patterns for a specific bull. Like how do you go about August scouting? Yeah. August scouting is, is, um, it's pretty interesting because a lot of times those things just go dark, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, for me, I, if it's a bull that I know, uh, and I know where he's been the year before, then it, August becomes a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's transition routes and I'm trying to figure out how he's getting to where he's going. Um, at last year, in fact, um, I put a lot of time in August, um, trying to figure out, uh, there, there's about a 20 mile, uh, path that several bulls took from summer to the rut. And, um, I found a little piece that I could get to on the way. And it was awesome. Um, it's just a, just a cool way to keep track of them. And I knew going into opening day, uh, which was early last year, it's early again this year. Um, I kind of knew when they were going to be there. So, um, just how to prioritize my time and how to hunt them, just keeping track of them. And, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to figure out. Um, there's a lot of bulls that I have no idea what they do in that time. They just disappear. I have no clue. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, but even then, dude, I mean, there's probably bulls that you don't know where they are opening week of season. Yeah. And then sometimes bulls will show up. Like, I mean, I look at a ton of bulls throughout the summer and every year there'll be one that shows up that I'm like, I've never seen that one before. Really? You know, just a big old giant roll in like, where the hell did you come from? Matter of fact, the bull I killed last year, I didn't see him at all in the summer. I saw him the year, the summer before that I'd saw him. Uh, so he summered in a different place between the two years. Either that or I just didn't, you know, who knows? I mean, that, that country's so broken and so, oh, no, I would have. <laughs> <laughs> you don't miss a yeah. mid-90s. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It, it is open and you can see a long ways. Um, my favorite spot in the world is a great vantage point. Like, I, I dream about just sitting on a knob. Like, there's no better place in the world than uh, sun coming up and, you're glassing with the sun and you know, they have no idea you're watching and they're just eating and it's just great, you know? Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I kind of got lost with what your question was there, but we were talking about August. Um, but I want to, you know, dive I mean, like work up to September. Yeah. Like as far as chasing mega bulls, your spot in stock, open country, most guys think of first week of season. Yeah. You know, you want to get that bull quote unquote, like kind of traditional, I guess, mentalities, like get the bull killed before he gets cowed up. Because a lot of those mega herd bulls are tough because they may have 30 cows, 50 cows, and that gets even harder. What's your thought on time frames, favorite piece of the season? There's no bad time, man. If the season's open, it's go time. Yeah. Um, I've killed them on the front end, in the middle, and on the back end of the rut. He was showing me what he was going to do, and I was like trying to tell him, like, yeah, but this is what everyone thinks. This is how everyone in the world is going to go about this, you know? So you have to think outside of the box and like, that is something you do super well. 
even I think better than me. Like I do a good job of thinking outside the box. What is everyone going to do and how can I do it differently or where can I go differently? Um, putting more, a little more effort into it. And then you just blow me out of the water and like wrap my head around this whole new concept. And so it's interesting that I don't know if that comes from just having a completely different background or, you know, how you developed your process of going about it. So you get into elk hunting, what were like, what were the, was there a time where like, okay, here's, here's what everyone else does. And you just wipe that off the table or how did you start the whole process of how you do your thing? Um, I started small. I just, you know, I wanted to gather, uh, I mean, the first phase for me was just information gathering. Um, so I started reading every bit of literature I could read about elk hunting. Um, you know, Ulmer, Chuck Adams, I talked to anybody, um, who would, who would talk to me and I just <laughs> listened, you know, uh, experienced hunters, yeah. uh, successful hunters. Um, I talked to every biologist that would answer the phone or return an email. <laughs> um, I read every single page of the Montana elk management plan 10 times over. I memorized it. I knew what every herd, I knew the populations, where they were growing, um, you know, where they were overpopulated, where they were underpopulated. Um, I just, just dove into it and, and just tried to learn as much as I possibly could. And then I looked at, at, you know, kind of what, what the masses are doing, you know, and the, and the fact is the masses, you know, what, I don't know what the percentage is, but most bow hunters, elk hunters are unsuccessful. So I don't want to be doing what those guys are doing. Yeah. I want to be doing something different. I mean, there's a, there's just a small, tiny percentage of guys who will kill a giant bull with a, with a bow. Um, there's even smaller percentage. who will do it every year. Um, I kind of wanted to figure out. And there's a really, really tiny percentage of who do it with 350 plus bulls every year, every year on public land, you yeah. know, all, all on your own, you know? Yeah. And, and I never wanted anybody to help me as another part of the thing. I don't know if it's ego or pride or, but it's just part of the challenge. Like mm-hmm. I, I wanted to figure it out, you know, where are the biggest bulls in the world and how can I kill them? That's what I wanted to figure out. So yeah. like, Man, I just, it gets me fired up just talking about it. You know, I've already been out a bunch of times this year, just trying to, trying to put pieces of the puzzle together. So you start, you start with the, I mean, basically information overload and yeah. you kind of take like what everyone else in the world is doing and work backwards to figure out where the, the hole in the, the entire plan is, right? Where's, where's the masses not and the bulls are or possibly, and then start just combing ground. Yeah, well, and then just developing a you know a criteria for what does it take for a, for a, a giant bull to exist. Um, you know, they got to be old. Um, feed is important. Genetics is important. So you look at those three things right there: yeah. age, feed, genetics. Um, and there's a multitude of combinations uh, or or different factors that can create that environment. Um, so I began just kind of looking through. You know, when I was doing my research, just trying to find. You know, what, what areas in the state, um, can I access, um, with a general tag? This is the first year, you know, that, that could create that environment where a bull could get old, have good feed and have good genetics to be, be a giant. And so I started there and then just started, you know, working my way out from there. And, and after the first year I became a resident and, uh, you know, then was able to, uh, have access to, uh, you know, just the awesome tags you can get as a resident here. Um, you know, the, the elk tag I get every year, a whole bunch of other people get, it's guaranteed. Uh, it's nothing special, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, um, you know, being a premium tag or anything like that. Uh, 
but you know, to me, I guess it is, it's, it's a big area that I get to hunt a lot of different areas. And, um, you know, I just spend as much time as I possibly can in those areas and, you know, just try to, like you said, maybe think out of the box, do something that, that other people aren't doing. And, um, I found a lot of places that absolutely sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, way more, way more of those places than, than gems for sure. But every once in a while, um, you might stumble onto something that kind of makes you think "Hmm, this, this might work. So going back to like, I said, your style is completely opposite. And and by that, you pretty much spot and stock. You you don't even own a bugle. hundred percent spot and stock. Um, (laughs) I've never carried a call. Is that stem, was the idea to go that route? Did that stem from this is what successful people do? I mean, you talk about Chuck Adams, you talk about Dan Evans, you talk about these guys that kill monster bulls. Did that stem from this idea that people who kill big bulls don't call? Or did it stem from like, this is just your style because you grew up in North Dakota? No, it did for sure. I I, I definitely copied that from um, some guys that, were, you know, even like Ulmer and, and some of those guys, you'll, you'll they'll talk about maybe, maybe giving a quick chirp to stop a bull or something like that. But just, I wanted to just, my, my whole system is about eliminating, um, all the factors that are out of, out of my control, minimizing risk, um, and just trying to maximize my efficiency as a hunter and, 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 and doing that without, um, you know, a big old bull, you know, if you're talking a 12, 10, 12 year old bull mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe he's seen everything, um, or maybe he's never been hunted. You know, you don't know is my point. And so what I wanted to do was eliminate the risk of, of blowing. I mean, I can't imagine what I'd sound like on a call anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure it would not be very good, but I just didn't want to, I knew that for sure that if I just, um, kind of pick my spot and I could hang back and I could play the waiting game and use time as, as my ally that, um, you know, I could be successful that way. You know, I, I want, the only time that bull ever knows I exist, I, maybe I've been watching him for three years. And the first time he ever knows I exist is when my arrow crushes him in the chest. That's uh, what I want. Um, is that because that's what appeals to you or do you feel that's the best tactic? Both. Um, I kind of like the stalker aspect of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's cool to to sit back and I, I mean, I spend a ton of time watching these animals and I just love watching them. Um, I have a huge appreciation for these things. That, I mean, just an animal that big and that athletic and mm-hmm. to just, you know, elude, um, people, predators, weather, all that for that long. That's why I love scouting them in the wintertime. Um, I like to go see a big bull in a Canyon in a snowstorm and just watch him and just know that when I lay down in my comfy bed, you know, 72 degrees at night, he's out there suffering. It makes me appreciate him more. It makes me want to work harder and, and just is motivating. Yeah. You know, I just want to know. What so they're doing. A lot of the bulls that you chase, I mean, you spend, like you said, you scout pretty much year round all the time. I get a text from you and you're watching elk in like March. I'm like, man, <laughs> I need to up my game. <laughs> like, this guy's on another level. Uh... And sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. So when this happens and he's not doing it, and he's answering because he's telling her. He saw, a lot of times he gets very demanding, and he'll just really hit the hard uh, uh, bugles, letting her know he wants her to come. That is when I throw the challenge over. Only when I have to. So I'm not calling with the cows on and challenging every single bull. 
only when I have to in that situation, now I'm letting that bull know why the cow isn't advancing. An intruder bull has showed up, and not only has he showed up, what is he showing? He challenged the bull. What does that tell the bull? This cow is coming into heat. You see, any time a bull shows defensive action, this is why when you have bulls with cows and they're not in heat, I'm telling you, you cannot force them to make a defensive bugle. They just don't do it. They mm-hmm. don't care. But when a cow start, start, starts to show signs of coming into estrus, they're defensive and they're protective and they're telling that bull to stay back right now. Don't you dare come any closer. It's a warning. The same as the herd bull is doing to you if you get too close to his harem with the hot cow and you bugle right in his face. Yeah. I mean, he is just going to he's going to get unleash a nasty bugle that's going to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. That's yeah. what you're doing. So you're showing him not only is there a cow there, but she's showing signs of coming in estrus. Mm-hmm. And that triggers the bull right there. So see, you're playing the game. So you're understanding both sides of that teeter totter, when to do something, when not to do something. I was going to talk about midday tags and stuff. Cause you were talking about the calling those bulls in midday, <laughs> uh, do you think it changes? Like, you know, you get a lot of those bulls that are kind of just cruising. Um, and I mean, do you change your tactics for that midday? If you got a bull, like in that scenario, obviously you guys decided to take a nap and weren't really interested. Like, Hey, we'll deal with it later. Uh, and I've, I've been there and I get it. Uh, but would you like, does that make you think about how you do your midday tactics or, or not? Um, not really. Um, I don't know. I mean, most I'm of the time you'd go down the- there, right? Like, but how do you, it's just interesting that, you know, sometimes those bulls will come all the way up the mountain. Yeah. Which was weird. And I, so, and I don't know if it had to do with where they were bedding. I mean, maybe it just happened to be that he was bedded up with his cows inside. He was going to come fight, you know, I, I yeah. don't know. Cause really he wasn't, I don't think he was that far away when, with the first initial bugle, um, or the answer. And, uh, so, and it was kind of weird how the, the lay of the land was set up. You know, there's kind of a, a drainage that went off down below us. So it kind of benched out a little bit. I don't know if he had his cows there and he decided to leave them and come up and fight or see if he had more cows up with this other bull that just bugled, you know, or what. So I don't know. It's, I'm not sure because he had cows before and he didn't. As far as I know, he didn't bring any with him or push him up or anything. So, yeah, but he also could have lost his cows the night before. So he could have just been kind of cruising, looking for something. I don't know. Maybe he got his butt kicked the night before. Yeah, that's funny because we actually, when we had to hit him on video that night before, uh, there was a smaller bull that come up, um, and they were posturing, and we got some pretty cool video of them. Uh, you know how the the big bull, Kelly's bull. Well, they weren't that much different in size, um, but you could just see the body size. Like Kelly's bull was quite a bit bigger body wise than this other one. And they would, that Kelly's bull actually came off the top where you could see his cows and, and started breaking the tree, then in their posture. And then they started just side hilling, you know, 20 yards apart all the way up, you know, until we couldn't see him. And Kelly's bull got all kind of puffed up looking and so did the other bull. And we thought we were going to get to see a fight, but uh, yeah. ended up losing light. Uh, but he could have lost them to that smaller body bull, I guess. Huh, that's a weird scenario, but it shows you, and it's like good advice to when, when you're just 
crashing for the midday or whatever, like, you know, if you don't have a plan and you don't want to drop back in a hole or, you know, sometimes you just don't want to go hunt timber midday instead of going to camp. I mean, just stay on the mountain because you never know, especially, you know, you get bulls cruising and you could, even if that bull didn't bugle, you know, if you were bugling, it could have came in silent. I mean, that bull, when he came in, it was, he was just kind of coming in silent, wasn't he? Uh, no, he was, he started bugling quite a bit, you know, I mean, from the initial response, and he was moving up pretty silent. I mean, he, he made it quite a ways without calling and then he just started getting closer and closer and then he keeps open up, you know? And so hmm. it's, I mean, he was probably bugling every 10 minutes or something and yeah. then it just started getting closer and closer. So obviously I started calling and to, to finish it off, to get it, get him in, you know? I mean, I wonder but, if it was just like curiosity yeah. that killed the cat. Uh, it could have been, you know, <laughs> you just never know what them bulls over there. There's just, there's so many bulls and uh, really i think the bull to cow ratio is so great you know there's so many bulls per cows um no that's huge i think that's that makes uh, a hunt that much better like when i was was just talking to someone about this like looking at units and stuff like a bull to cow ratio is very important i'd take bull to cow ratio over harvest success any day of the week when usually they're tied pretty close together because you get those high bull to cow ratios and you're just gonna have bulls cruising you know doing things different. It's not like every, you know, every bull is going to have his own little group of cows where you get in an area that's high bull to cow ratio and you got bulls cruising. You got, you know, really good bulls like Kelly's bull, just, you know, cruising, looking for, for love or fight or whatever he's looking for. But like that just adds to that success. Now, granted where she was at, it's like super premium unit. Uh, but same could be said for, you know, a general season, uh, hunt in Idaho. Yeah. And I have yet, to find uh the perfect unit in a general season you know type area i mean we had some pretty good success in idaho but man last year it was dead like so dead that we had we were struggling bad you know i killed my bull the first day but there literally was no sign of elk anywhere in in my area which is usually pretty loaded um you know i go through 18 20 bulls and, but I mean, this year we seen one, of course we killed it, but, uh, yeah, we were, I was the only one to tag out out of us three. So it kind of sucked. So if you get to an area, cause this is probably a good topic to go over for a lot of people. Uh, and this, I mean, this could play right into being mobile and, you know, so many guys want to go say they go on their first Idaho hunt and they show up and things aren't going the way they planned, or there's just absolutely no elk there, you know, like how does your guys's strategy, like what's your process? And obviously it didn't work perfectly in this circumstance, but like you get to an area, this is an area you've hunted elk in before you've, you know, elk used to be there at least, uh, walk me through kind of like what, what you guys do to, for plan B or, or like how that works for guys that, you know, maybe show up to an area and there's nothing. Plan B. Plan B is all the areas that you think that there might be elk in, but we've never hunted it because we never had to. Yeah. And we go hit those areas, you know, like the ones that aren't too far off, you know, three, four, five miles away than where there's more pressure, hunting pressure and stuff. Cause we like to get away from people. You know, mm. I don't like to hunt around a lot of pressure and where there's a lot of roads, there's a lot more pressure, but that's where we ended up going to see if we couldn't find elk. We did find some elk, but, there was also a lot more bugling from, you know, Primo's bugles and all, you know, hoochie mamas and stuff. And, and it just, that just kind of makes a hunting way tougher, but 
we we did find elk it just wasn't good hunting like we're used to you know with elk that are not being harassed daily with quads and side by side riding around on roads so yeah because we like to hit wilderness or you know hard to get to areas but yeah but it's like a, mean, it's a catch-22 because if you so you go to plan B and you want to, you don't want to commit to anything. Cause I've been there and it's, it's, it's tough to just say, I'm going to dive into this area I've never been into. It's going to take me a day to get in there and I'm going to hunt it, which is tough because you don't know if there's elk there or not. So it's like my plan B usually tends to be, you know, checking areas I can get to with the scooter or with the truck, you know, basically bugling into drainages and things like that. But on the flip side, you also have, that's what everyone else and their dog is doing with their hoochie mama and their primos beagle. So like, how yeah. do, you, do you guys, do you guys try to stay in area that you can, can access better? Or do you try to just bomb into a new area that you've never been into? Like walk me through that kind of type situation. <laughs> we literally, we did plan B, C, D, E, F. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, that's how bad it was last year. We, we literally, we went to three different units, like within our area. And I mean, it, it was, it was just so tough and maybe it was because it was raining so hard all the time. So it was hard to even really see fresh sign unless it was like, you know, within the hour. <laughs> uh, but it, we, we tried and we tried some units that we'd looked over um, as backups that were gated units that you had to hike into. I mean, we hiked into one spot. It was, we did a five mile hike in. I mean, it looked like it should have been good, but we just, we never got anything to answer or anything, you know? So, I mean, I, instead of bringing our tents and stuff to go camp, you know, we're just, it's basically an in and out thing. If we didn't see what we wanted to see, we weren't going to come back. Yeah. Figured if it was good, well, we'd go back to the truck and get our stuff and, and, uh, go bivy in, you know, yeah. but, uh, we, I mean, we just never did find anything like that that was very good. In fact, the the most elk that we found were closer to roads. Yeah, no, I've the done that too. Just wasn't panning out. Yeah, no, and that's. I mean, it's good advice. Just to, I mean, you got to be mobile. I think is the it's I the recommendation I would give. Like if I was in that circumstance, I've been in that circumstance. I hunted a place in Idaho one time, and same thing. I had hunted this same area before got into all kinds of elk and that year for whatever reason, they're just, I couldn't turn up anything and, uh, just started covering the mountain. And a lot of it, I was, you know, I'd end up clear on the other side of the mountain or on the, you know, kind of on the, you know, over here, check the South, check the North everywhere, hike into areas and ended up killing a little five point, uh, all the way on the opposite side of the mountain from where I've ever hunted. But you know, sometimes you just basically got to get mobile and cover ground uh, to find elk. And that's one of the downsides to say guys are going to Idaho and you want to pack in five miles. You pack in, it's like a certain amount of work to get in there and do all this. But if there's no elk there, you got to come back out and either pack somewhere else. So having a plan B is is crucial. Yeah, it, dude, we were getting so desperate last year we were doing stuff that we normally wouldn't do, like just dive into the bottoms of these canyons, just to see if there's elk sign, just to see if there was any sign of elk anywhere, you know, and it's like, normally you don't have to just, we'll, we'll end up spotting some bulls or, or a bull or um, a herd or something, or at least get something to respond where we weren't even doing that. We weren't seeing nothing. We weren't hearing nothing. 
So we like, we're like, let's just, let's dive down in see what, you know, see what's down there. Maybe they're just not talking, but yeah, yeah. it was, it was void of elk. <laughs> oh man. So how do you avoid that this year? I don't know. Don't hunt the same <laughs> spot. Yeah, but you could go Try back there new. and it could be just packed full of elk for all you know. It, it, and it probably will be, but I'm not going back. I just can't do it. I'm <laughs> going to try a different spot and see how it works. It's it's a spot that we've hunted before. Um, that, that's had good elk numbers, so we're going to give that a shot. Yeah, but why'd you leave that place in the first time? Um, It's because we split up. You know, our, our groups kind of split up, so one group usually hunts one side, and, and then I'll hunt the other. Yeah. And it just, my, my side was just dead. <laughs> so now you need to go back and hunt it, hunt their side. Maybe that'll bring you some luck. Yep. Um, yep. I hope so. Oh, a couple years ago when I, my, I, I called this bull in to my son at 18 yards and it was a nice six point. He hung up on me at 125 yards as I was trying to cow call him in. He was coming, coming, coming. At 125, he was a herd bull. But I got him to move because he was in the willows. And so when he froze up right there for about 30, 40 seconds, I knew he didn't want to come. So I retreated. And I immediately went to pleading sounds, very soft. And I bet you, no kidding, I gave between 80 and 100 of them. As I left my son, I said, hold up right there. And I started backing up. I ended up getting maybe 70, 80 yards, 90 yards from my son. I'm leaving. I'm letting that bull know, ah, I'm losing interest in you. I'm not, I, I, I don't care. But if I would have stayed there, time and, and, and uh, past experiences showed me, if I would have stayed there and kept calling and trying to make him force him to come the rest of the way, he would have turned around and left. He, his bugles would have got further away. Now, you know, there's always those in you know circumstances where maybe he would have tried to cut the distance more but i know from a lot of these hunts when they get to that point and they won't come for a couple of minutes and he keeps chuckling you and chuckling and chuckling he wants me to come and i never introduced a bugle at all it was nothing but cow sounds and i knew right then i have to retreat it's the only way i need to try to get him to catch up and what if that bull does and what we found over the years we've killed a lot of them like this is he once he thinks the cow's leaving he comes to where, where he first heard her. Why? He wants to scent check the ground. Is this cow worth going after? I want to know if she's coming into estrus. Is she coming into heat? So when you start <clears throat> this whole scouting, e-scouting thing, how do you, I think a lot of people have a problem on where to even start. You take mm -hmm. a uh, state like Montana, if you have a general tag right now, right. you can hunt a ginormous <laughs> swath of land. <laughs> yeah. so there's a lot of sanctuaries. Right. Like, how do you even start? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's a little bit easier because say you have a 16A tag in New Mexico. Right. That's pretty easy. You know, right. you're a small piece of a pie. Let's figure out that piece of a pie. But I think people get yeah. lost, even say Idaho. Yep. Unless you've heard that the neighbor Joe hunted unit 46 or whatever. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what that is. Uh, it hunted this unit or you have some insider information. It can be hard to mm -hmm. say, man, where do I even start? Right. No, it, it is. And, and so states that I don't live in, how I'll use Colorado, for example, the reason that I ended up in the areas I do on over the counter in Colorado. And I think you could use this same 
strategy or, or plan for over-the-counter in Montana, over-the-counter, or general in Montana, general yeah. in, you know, Wyoming has a lot of general units. Yeah. Idaho has a lot of general units. Oregon does. Um, I went to their Game and Fish website, and I looked at the harvest trends for the previous five years. Colorado Parks and Wildlife has really good data on their website. So it has herd trends of what's, is it growing or is it shrinking? What's the cow to calf ratio? What's the bull to cow ratio, mature bull to cow ratios? And then I looked at the harvests, and I picked 10 of them. And I, this is, okay, I'm a, I'm a CPA, right? I'm like the Charlie Daniels of the Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. So I've got all this stuff in this Excel spreadsheet. And if you know Excel, you can do sort mm-hmm. and you can sort by this column or that column. And so I scored each of the units based on column one, two, three, da, da, da. And it came up with, oh, this is the order in which my my dad, my research says, you should hunt this one first. Well, I got to looking at some of them. Uh, and a couple of the really good ones, I couldn't get a film permit in because it's hard to get a film permit in a designated wilderness area. And I could see that most of the harvest was happening in wilderness areas. So I ended up having to cross off like three of my top five. Um, so that's kind of where I started at. I don't want to go, you know, the old saying, you can't catch a fish that isn't there. If the elk numbers aren't doing well, you've Mm -hmm. already put yourself in a hole. So I use that data as kind of my starting point. And then I went out on Google earth. This was before on X even was come to market. (laughs) Uh, and Google earth was pretty raw at that time, but I looked at the terrain and said, okay, is this the kind of stuff I like to hunt is, you know, wow, it's nothing but thick oak brush, man. I hate hunting oak brush. Yeah. <laughs> and I do. Uh, now if you give me a mix of oaks and aspens and some dark timber, now, nah, now we're talking. Uh, but I, I just, that, that's kind of the approach I took and, and I can't say that that's a science. Uh, but yeah. singling out where you don't want to hunt. And it goes right. back exactly what you're talking about within specific areas. It's the where not to go. Right. And then narrowing that down. Yeah. So that, that's kind of how I, and I just use my example in Colorado because my example in Montana would be biased. Uh, my, my selection here in Montana, the places I hunt has been more of a trial and error with months of of failure and yeah. the traveling hunter who is coming to Montana doesn't have months of time yeah. to, to fail an experiment. So that that's kind of the way I did it. Um, and the way I do it when I, I'm picking units of where I'm going to hunt. So that, that, that's kind of the starting point. Kind of how you choose where to even start your, yeah. your research and your, your investigation, so to speak. Yep. You were talking about, and I want to get into the whole efficiency because like dawned on me that this is, definitely your forte of being efficient, <laughs> but when it comes to scouting, yep. e-scouting in particular, it, how many hours you were saying you spend a ton of time? How many hours do you spend and what's a practical amount of time? Oh, <laughs> uh, a practical amount of time would probably be a lot less than I, <laughs> um, I, part of it is I just love doing it. And since we're doing this series right now, I've really forced myself to do all of my e-scouting for the hunts we got mm-hmm. coming up this year, just because when you do it, it reminds you of what you, you know, you kind of get back in that mode. Um, the, a practical amount of time, 
uh, if I had a tag, say I lived in Missouri or Texas or somewhere, and I had a, a Wyoming general elk tag, I'd probably be spending, I don't know, uh, five or six hours a week scouting wow. from home. That's a for lot. That tag. Yeah. And how many units had, would you have selected it? Because I have a Wyoming general tag this year. Okay. And I'm already down to three, maybe four yeah. units. I, I'd say by now I'd be down to two or three units. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd, I'd be doing everything I can. And when I say everything I can, I'd be looking at that data. Uh, some of the states even have the harvest data by each season, whether mm-hmm. it's archery, whether it's the rifle, whatever. Um, I'd be looking at moisture trends. I'd be looking at, uh, all kinds of things like that. I'd be calling people, uh, emailing people, uh, and, and I do it in a tactful way. I mean, I don't just say, Hey, I got your name from so-and-so. Can you tell me where to go? <laughs> uh, I, I never contact anyone for, for, uh, hunting I guess, feedback or, or as a sounding board without already having my ducks in a row. If I call a biologist, I'm already going to have four places I want to ask them about. If you call a biologist or a warden or somebody and say, Hey, can I have tag XYZ? Can you tell me where to go? They're going to just be like, you know what? I get a thousand calls like this every Mm -hmm. August. Uh, let me put you on hold for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> or they're going to tell you the spot that they just told the last Everybody 40 else. callers. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I want to say, can you tell me about the hunting pressure in Beehive Basin or, mm. you know, Davis Creek or yeah. whatever it might be? And usually if you have a, gen, you know, a tightened up, uh, non-general question, they'll, they'll give you better feedback. So uh, and I know in today's world, uh, we're all busy, so we try to find uh, shortcuts. Uh, but I, I think getting information and sharing with people is one. I always offer, how can I help that person? Mm-hmm. You know, I've hunted this, I've hunted there, blah, blah, blah. If I can help you in any way, I'm happy to. Uh, so I, I do some of that, but I'd say anymore, most of my scouting is is more on the computer and less talking to other people it's i get a lot of fun out of showing up and if i nailed it in my e-scouting it's kind of like yeah but then i also enjoy the challenge of showing up and looking at the camera crew and say you know i got a screwed up guys we're gonna gonna have to pull camp and move and we thought we had a five-day hunt we're down to a three-day hunt let's let's get the hell out of here this is this was a bad idea on my part But if you can pull that off, kind of, you know, save a, a hunt by adapting, that's a ton of fun too. So, um, what's that, your average night? Like say it's 11 o'clock at night, you're going to jump on the computer and start mm-hmm. scouting. What's, yeah. what's your system? I mean, we, you're going to have this entire series and all these things right. start to finish, but I'm more curious, like what's the average e-scouting session look like? Usually. So it, it kind of changes as I get closer and closer to the hunt. So it's, it starts out pretty general. Once I get the tag, like I have a tag in New Mexico this year. I've never hunted the unit ever in my life. I've driven through it. That's it. Uh, I've hunted antelope there. Um, so it's like, holy cow, this is a big unit. I mean, there's peaks that are 11,000 feet and then there's, you know, basins that are 5,000 feet. What the? Yeah. So that started as a pretty general thing right now. I'm down to within about probably a 10 square mile area of where I'm going to be. 
come opening day archery season. So you kind of have a really good idea at this point, you mm-hmm. know, early July already. You got right. a good idea of probably camp one, two, three options. Yep. What are you looking for? What are yep. you scanning? So in, in this instance, okay, I have the early archery tag, September 1st to the 14th. That's pre-rut. All right. In New Mexico, having hunted there plenty of times and in Arizona and others, I'm like, okay, they they are coming off this uh, early season phase where it's all about food, 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 food. Now, in those states, monsoon, they, they get these monsoon flows that start about now and through July and August and September uh, the, is when they get most of their precipitation. Well, if they get a heavy monsoon season in July and August, the entire landscape is going to be food. So for me, when I'm hunting pre-rut, I'm looking for cows because the bulls are leaving their bachelor groups. They're going to start staging near where the cow groups are. And the younger bulls are going to be right in there starting, you know, by late August. The young bulls are going to be bugling and acting like, hey, it's time. And the old bulls are going to be somewhere from a mile or two away coming in and checking at night. No, go back and Mm -hmm. hang out, wait another day. And, and, uh, so the, the strategy here is, all right, what do the cows need at that time of year? Because I know that these bulls are going to be, by that time, are going to be somewhere within a couple mile of cows. Well, cows, it's always about food, 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 food all year round. Here's a hunter. He's coming in. I don't care how experienced you are. And even experienced hunters still fall short of understanding this because I talk to a lot of different hunters. And what they don't get is where is the elk and what is the elk's intention for the time frame you're hunting? It's okay? so simple. If you catch an elk the first hour of daylight, you're probably going to catch him very near his feed, nighttime watering and feeding area. Him and his cows, you're going to catch him in that vicinity. But the minute you're at 45 minutes to an hour after daylight, what are they doing? They're moving. They're leaving that spot. They are now leaving and going from their feeding to their bedding area. Last two hours of light, you can catch them out of their bedding. And where are they going? Back over to wherever they're going to feed and water and spend the night. So, when you start getting hunters and they're going, man, it was 830 in the morning, you know, hour and a half after life. And I got this bull bugling. and He just bugled and we both bugled. and He just kept moving. I mean, he just ran from me. And I did this for four or five different bulls and they all ran. You can't bugle bulls. What was going wrong? <laughs> the bull was in transition. What yep. they don't understand is these bulls had a destination. They're going somewhere. They don't like coming back where they just came from seconds ago, minutes ago. Yeah, he and doesn't they're care. So now you do is you basically want to dog that herd and you need to get him to where his destination is, where he's going to bed, where they want to be. Now you can hunt that bull. Now those elk don't want to leave. They're where they want to be. Unless they see you or smell you, they're very hard to push out of those areas. And do you know that we probably kill between 85 and 90% of the bulls we kill are in their bedding area. That's where we kill them all. A lot of swinging dicks in town when it comes to the hunting industry, for sure. <laughs> and I'm not one of them. I'm not proclaiming to be one. I'm just a guy that gets out there and gets after it. So Kills big bulls. I I try. Yeah. I try. So Done pretty damn well. 
I've uh, I've been fortunate. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not like I just walk out there and and do it. It's it's a lot of time, yeah. a lot of time spent. It's uh, you know, I mean, I have I've had a you know, I've been asked by several new hunters, you know, what what it what it takes, and I'm like, well, I think about ninety percent of the guys out there go out for the first time opening day or the day before opening day, and they have a plan, but they have no clue. Yeah, what's there and what's what's to be expected. And uh, I've got a a friend that just moved here. Um, he's lived all over, and he he's he hit me up with uh, with that question, and and it's fresh in my head. I, I told him, I'm like, you know what? Hunting season is year round. It's just only certain days you can actually shoot the animal. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're hunting for a game plan when the bell dings and i think i i compared it to like mma fighting just as a like a weird yeah, yeah. example these fighters don't just step in the ring and and throw down you're talking like months of preparation hunting is the same thing yeah it's it's interesting to see you can see the dynamic between people who are next level right like there's a there's a next step where it gets real serious and then it's it's a big time commitment. That's a lot of it. It's like spending the time mm -hmm. constantly. When it becomes a year-round thing, it changes it. Looking back, I mean, super successful now, but <clears throat> what advice do you think you'd give yourself in first year? Um, scout. I mean, that's that's how I, I find success now, I feel like, is it's not an opening day yeah. whistle. You don't start opening day. You you know the tree that that oak's going to walk by opening day and without being in the field beforehand you're not going to you're not going to know that um you know knowing elk behavior they're they're very habit oriented mm -hmm. uh, they have their places they like to be they have their like they have their places that they like to uh go when they're bumped and you know sometimes they run like a routine and it's 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 all about the the days spent before. So, I it's mean, just being in elk country. Like you said, you know, a lot of early years spent following elk yep. versus knowing mm -hmm. where they're going to be. And it's like, you're like, oh, there's an elk. And especially, you know, first daylight, I want to find some elk or got these elk and they're right here. Yep. And then you follow them all the way to their bed and then end up bumping them because they shut up. And oh man, you spend a lot of years just following elk mm -hmm. for no reason. I mean, you that's how you learn elk behavior, exactly. I guess. You know, like exactly. oh, that's what not to do. But that's definitely, I can see that. Mm -hmm. That's something, even for me. Is yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, now, I mean, I look at it totally different. I mean, I, I like to hunt. I like to get my time in before, you know, when there's nobody out there. But then there's all those uncontrollables, too, that, you know, all summer I've been watching this group of bulls on the same, in the same base and do the same thing. Opening day, all of a sudden there's two trucks on that ridge, there's one on this ridge, and who knows how many yahoos are in this basin. Yeah. You know, how do you cope with that? And another problem with scouting for elk that people will find is you could, it's not like mule deer where opening day that buck's probably going to still be in the high country. Mm -hmm. You know, with elk, as soon as they go hard horned, it could be day of season, it could be day before season. Things change. Absolutely. The wind blows in the, in the fall and all yep. of a sudden everything changes. How do you deal with that with like scouting and knowing, you know, these elk, 
Is it just a matter of knowing it well enough to know this is what they're going to do when they do that? Well, I mean, it's, you know, the, the number one thing that you're, you're looking for come mating season mm-hmm. for bulls is cows. Yeah. And cows run a, a, a fairly tight routine. They're, they're more, more, more predictable. More habitual. Yep. Than, than what you typically find the bulls to be. You know, the bulls are going to be real easy in July and August, but I know a lot of guys that find big bulls in July and August and then come fall. No idea where they are. Yeah. They don't, I mean, we start hunting most, most Western states start hunting either late August or early September. And by that time, they've been hardhorned for two weeks. And, you know, you see mill deer go through the same transition. They go hardhorn. And within a week, maybe two of hardhorn, and they're off that pattern. They change. Their their hormones are changing, you know, from a biology standpoint. Their priorities in their mind aren't, you know, evade predators, eat, sleep, and get fat. You know, it's... Okay, now I gotta like prove that I'm the the king of the mountain, you know. And elk, elk do this, and the thing is with our mule deer, I feel like they shed their velvet a couple weeks later, and the 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 seasons coincide. Mm-hmm. Mule deer elk seasons typically are very similar in most states, and with that extra two weeks, like if we started in the western states, if we started mid August for elk, you could some you could kill them in summer pattern, yeah, really easy, yeah. but. Whitetails, you know, the guys that are hunting agriculture in the Midwest and stuff see the same thing. Yeah. You know, when the, when the, when the deer shed their velvet. When it comes to the scouting and stuff, when you, do you look for cows or you look for bulls? Do you look for both? I look for both. Um, both are a win in my book. Um, the, you know, if, if you, if you find bulls, obviously that's great. It gives you a, a good idea of the age structure of the herd. Um, if you find cows, that's great because those cows are going to be there in early September. You know, if they're in, they're in a summer pattern, that summer pattern goes till, you know, mid-September when you start getting those cooler nights and, you know, you start seeing potential snow and high country and stuff like that. That's that's what throws those cows into different patterns. And with with bulls, the, the biggest bulls typically are going to travel, you know, as little as possible to maintain their, you know, their, their strength mm-hmm. and their their fat reserves to breed. So you're a lot of times your your younger bulls are going to travel further. So if you find a, a basin that's adjacent to a basin of bulls, adjacent to a, a basin of cows, chances are that's right. You know, in, in what I find, the, the bigger bulls are going to take over those herds of cows that are close. Let's just walk through some basic stuff just for everyone else. I want to say I go up on the mountain right now and you know I'm in a new state so I go up here and I'm like I want I've never hunted here like I want to go just see what's up and I go out there and I find some cows. What's what would be your next move? Like what's your next step? Well, there's elk there. Yeah. That's that's the most important thing. Um the next step for me would be to uh check, you know, cuz the cows through the summer they're raising you know, young mm-hmm. And they're not going to be in as nasty of a draw that maybe a bull, a mature bull or a, a bachelor group of bulls is going to want to be in. You know, bulls are typically they winter higher than the, the herds of cows. Just like, you know, you, 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 when you see winter grounds, the bulls are up in the, in the trees mm-hmm. still and the cows are down in the flats. And it's the same thing in the summer. So I'm looking at adjacent basins, maybe the same basin, um, maybe in some of the nastier terrain. You know, how far away would you look? 
I, I would look in the same basin. I would look at, you know, maybe some, if there's avalanche shoots at the top, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, spots. Um, I've really relied heavily on glassing probably the last five or six years because it it's non-intrusive. You get a good idea and with good glass, you can, you can really tell what an area is going to produce, mm. you know, the bachelor group that comes out, you know, the biggest bulls might not be as visible as the smaller bulls, but if you're seeing 280, 300 class, six points on the regular in a, in a bachelor group, I'd, I'd be willing to bet that there's probably a, a, a big bull in uh, there. That's, that's really good advice. I don't think it's ever been said on the podcast, but if you find, you'll see areas that have, you know, bachelor groups are all like little 240, 250 bulls. Mm-hmm. You pretty good assumption that you know there's gonna be a little bit bigger but it's not yeah. like you're gonna go 150 inches bigger yeah you know maybe yep. one but you know like you said like if you're in an area and you're looking at bachelor groups that are that 300 size mm-hmm. you, you know yeah, you're and that's the thing if they're hanging out in the open i mean typically that's a that's a younger age class bull yep. before they before they go like in, in visible yeah. you know <laughs> you know like you know and, and horned ungulates are all very similar you know they, they're all gonna the you hit these big big elk, big deer, muleys, whitetail, doesn't matter. They hit a point where they're the most sensitive to pressure, they're they're the most sensitive to daylight movement, things like that. And then as they get older, I feel like they start to get lazy about it. Maybe they're more visible and things like that. You see it you see it with guys that are targeting the same buck that lives in the same, you know, you know, draw. In a on an Iowa farm, that all can kind of translate. I mean, it's just animal, you know, behavior. It's yeah. it's. It does seem like there's like a middle ground where you know a bull gets to a certain age and he gets very reclusive and mm-hmm. and and then as he gets older, he almost falls into those lazy routines. Yep. You know, and that's when they get killed. It's like your bull gets into that lazy routine where he starts doing the same thing every year, same spot every year. Yep. And it just depends on if someone finds him or not. Yeah. Exactly. If it was kind of a, you know, lazy bugle from his bed, he's just letting the cow know where he is. A lot of times I won't say anything to it with a, from a bull sound because he's really not that worked up or getting excited. So what I like to do is do those several little series, like, I, like you asked, about a minute apart, minute and a half apart. I try to make it real. Cows don't just sit there at 80, 90 yards away out of nowhere and just, you know, cow calling everywhere. They just make a few sounds as they work into the area. I let that little bit of time go. And after that third little set, I usually will wait a couple minutes and I won't make a sound. Nothing. I just sit there. I'm really listening and watching, making sure the bull isn't sneaking in. But what I do next is I start raking a tree. I just start raking and I rake and I rake and I rake. Now I've really got this bull's curiosity up. Because why is an, an intruder bull, another bull, which he doesn't even know who it is, can't tell by sound, sight, or smell, because all I'm doing is raking, but he's raking right where that cow is. Why is he doing that? Because he's displaying for the cow. Mm-hmm. There's a good chance you are planting the seed in that real bull's mind over there that there's a cow coming into estrus. Is she ready to be bred? Is she is she still 10 hours away? Who knows? The point is, this bull is showing interest. He does not do that himself unless he has a cow coming in heat. And he knows it. 
They sound, they sound card stupid. This is the that's what they demonstrate. Defensive action shows hot cows coming in or one ready to be bred. Because when a cow needs to be bred or is nearing or is ready, she does not make one sound. Nothing. People will tell you, oh, they make an estrus buzz. Oh, they do this. Oh, they do that. They do not. They make no sound at all out of all the studies I've done. And I can prove it to you. I have video of May, April, May, June, July of, of, of the contact or estrus buzz sound being made by cows all the time. Okay. That shows me right there. The piece of the puzzle does not fit together. If I don't care how much you want to believe it, that that is an estrus sound. It is not. They do hmm. not breed in May, June, July, uh, uh, August. They don't breed. But I can show you footage of, of cows doing it all over the place because it does not mean that. The craziest thing I've ever seen hunting in my life, the wild, the truly wildest elk I've ever seen were on a huge remote ranch in New Mexico that, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of acres and we would kill one or two bulls off this place a year. And the elk were so wild that most of these elk had never seen a human. They would come in downwind of you when you'd call and literally walk up 10 feet from you. And I mean, they were so wild, they had no idea what you were, why you were there, and why you weren't a cow elk. I mean, it was unbelievable to see what, you know, in my mind, what elk hunting was probably like five, six hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, but that was a complete anomaly. You know, that was a once in a lifetime place that, that unfortunately I'll never get to hunt or set foot on now. Um, but, uh, you Do you know. think that making or getting to hunt some of those places or getting to guide on some of those big ranches like that has made you a better hunter? Absolutely. You know, I think to lean on a, a, a waterfowl hunting analogy with uh, bird dogs, which I think George Hickox always says, you know, birds, birds, birds. And I think one thing, you know, as with any sport, repetition is necessary. And, you know, when you're elk, elk, elk and mule deer, mule deer, mule deer for 200 days out of the year, you know, you're more in tune with what your game eyes are on all the time. You're more in tune with where the animals are and what they're doing. So I think that private ground just being around a lot of animals and really, you know, from the pure hunting side, seeing a lot of animals go down and how they react. I think all of that combined has made me kind of filled out um, my hunting background. Oh, you know, yeah. I think the bones that, that we everyone should put in place in my mind come from dogging it on public ground. And then once you really need, I think everybody should have a chance to spend some time guiding and seeing a lot of elk get killed. And, um, you know, there, there's just so much that goes into repetition in that game. And you really get that uh, on, on some really good private ground. How do you, I guess, give us a little insight on hunting non-migratory elk versus migratory elk. Cause you've probably done a little bit of both having and being in Colorado. I have. And so the flat top uh, wilderness area and mountain range is right out my back door here in Steamboat Springs. And that is probably, you know, that's a, the largest elk herd in North America in the world, really. And it's very migratory. So that elk herd, uh, migrates, um, depending on where you are on the range to the North and the West or down to the South. And so 
what those elk do is they're located in what we call over-the-counter units, as everybody knows them. So units where anybody can go out and pretty much hunt. And what I found out was, man, why am I not seeing any big bulls in these units? Now, there's some sleeper bulls in those units. Don't don't get me wrong. But these bulls and cows, when it starts snowing and they start migrating, they literally just start migrating and they just get shot. And as they complete continue to migrate because they're going through over-the-counter units and they're going through private land that's outfitted. I mean, they literally just get hammered. And what that means is that it's very rare for a bull elk to reach five and a half years old in those migratory areas. Now, there, I'm starting to see a few bulls, you know, these 320, 330, and even a bigger bull killed in those flat top units um, here recently. But what I figured out is that Man, um, there's some of these elk that these we've had so many mild winters in a row in certain areas that there's some bulls that just aren't migrating. And so what I figured out is where are these bulls? What are they doing? Why are they not, not migrating? And what is keeping them in these areas? So what happened was I started finding these huge bulls during the winter in places that my family that homestead in this valley has never seen elk during the winter. And so, you know, the wheels started spinning in my head and I'm going, well, Man, that totally makes sense why that bull's wintering right there. And, um, you know, that has helped me to go in and figure out that, hey, these bull, some of these bulls are really localized and they're not moving. And if they don't move, they are not going to get shot and they have a very high likelihood of reaching five and a half years old. Kind of the second, you know, aspect of that picture is here in Colorado, we've got a lot of beetle kill timber that's really changing the face of our national forests, and even a lot of private ground. And what these bulls that don't migrate have figured out is they can live in these patches of dark forest, dark black timber with down timber with, I mean, it's a nightmare to get through this stuff. You've been through it. You have to climb over things, log jams. It's just, yeah. it's a disaster to get through. And these bulls will not, they rut in it, they summer in it, they winter in it, and they, they're in there year round. Uh, I mean, literally the bull I killed last year, um, probably never left a mile radius of where I killed him. And I killed him in one of the wallows. I killed him on a late rifle hunt in one of the wallows that he'd been using during archery season. Literally, I shot him and huh. uh, had to deal with him in a wallow that he was using in archery season. And wow. so that's kind of an example of, you know, uh, exactly what these bulls are doing. So it's kind of this beetle kill timber has really changed the picture here in Colorado. Do you, why is it, let's kind of break that down. Why is the beetle yeah. kill, uh, changing the aspect is, I mean, essentially it's operating like a burn. Um, so for those who don't know the beetle kill area is basically these, uh, pine beetles are coming in and they can kill an entire forest chunks of ground. And so you have a lot of standing dead timber. Now what you're talking about with blowdown stuff. So if standing dead timber stays and you don't do anything with it, essentially it'll blow down and then create checkerboard mess of uh deadfalls that you can't even get through and then the problem is you got saplings coming up through that but for a certain time period there's a lot of light coming to that forest floor which is creating a lot of undergrowth which is creating mass amounts of feed essentially right exactly and so exactly. you basically imagine you basically have a hay field that is instead of these elk having to migrate to find their feed there's enough feed on the ground because it's a burn without a burn and the problem i mean a burn is good because it creates new growth 
but there's a number of years where you if it's too hot it'll torch off all that feed so with a with a beetle kill it's essentially a burn without the loss so you get more light more water to the forest floor creating huge amounts of grass uh and with the winters that we've been having there's not enough snow to push them off that so they're they're holding up in these beetle kill areas that's interesting exactly and then you think about throwing a castle wall around it because of all the timber that has fallen down. Yep. And then you create a maze in the interior that these elk know and will never leave. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, they're literally spending four seasons every, every season, every year in these patches of timber. And um, they've got everything they need. And the cows will kind of come and go. But uh, that's, that, that is my big takeaway from Colorado right now. Which is going to create, this is like a secret we should not even give on the podcast. That right. is going to create a bunch of units that are underrated because they have late season hunts that have never produced or, or shouldn't produce by a lot of aspects. But now we'll have bulls in them due to the change. You know, there's always these things that change over time. And I guess if you're, you're intuitive enough to watch the changes and see what's happening, this is how units shift and you get. You know, some units may have been popular for years and years and years, but that can flip. That can change. Circumstances like this where you have, you know, years of beetle kill now is changing the behavior of a lot of those bulls. Not only is it creating higher age classes because these bulls aren't getting killed migrating through units and being exposed. Because if a bull's got a certain pocket, he can live a long time. And if he doesn't get in the way, a lot of these bulls get killed. Migratory bulls get killed and migratory herds generally don't have as high age class or as big as bulls because, you know, they're exposed. They're vulnerable when they're migrating. So they're getting killed, migrating through these units and just happen to be in the open when, you know, happenstance uh, Hunter Joe sees him while he's deer hunting and shoots him. Uh, Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that changes that dynamic of a lot of the units in Colorado. I mean, you have a lot of areas that I'm sure you, you just have so much knowledge of years of hunting your entire life that you can pull from. But when it comes to say you were forced to find a new area and things like that, say New Mexico, um, it's always tough to not pull from prior knowledge because you always have this like prior knowledge that impedes on that decision-making. But what kind of things would you look for, you know, in helping people find, you know, what to even start with. And you had kind of touched on something earlier and I wanted to circle back to it and just looking at, you know, areas that are not necessarily thought of, um, from an elk standpoint, especially with the New Mexico, you were talking about big bulls being in areas where they probably don't normally. Right. And I think, you know, one thing to kind of let the, the cat out of the bag about my hunting style is I have made my killing, um, killing elk in kind of fringe spots. I mean, I've killed elk, you know, within legal distance off of the road, but off of a state highway where it looks like sheep type country. Um, You've got to realize, you know, if I was an elk, where, you know, where is the public, where's the pressure, not public pressure, where is the pressure, A, any pressure going to be coming from? Where are some nasty little spots where nobody's going to think about getting into or bother getting into or just drive by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a unit in New Mexico that's just just west of um, Albuquerque. It gets a lot of tags and a lot of pressure. And um, it was one of those units where it's a huge unit, went into a blind going, my God, where where am I going to hunt? I know all this high country. 
aspen and pine forest up top looks amazing but man there were every hunter who drawn a tag in that unit was up there and i realized man there's some really good looking lower desert country down here and uh five six days later of just glassing those fringe areas literally just walking 100 yards off the road and glassing down into nasty canyons we walked out with a 380 plus bull and a uh, kind of 300 plus inch bull so <laughs> that's pretty both, dang good but yeah both of which you know are kind of even the 300 inch bull was a damn good bull for that unit but it was just fine you know i just realizing okay everybody's driving by miles of this lower country there's got to be elk in here and so you know, whether it's looking for patches of scrub oak and steep canyons or mountain mahogany patches in New Mexico, um, just kind of paying attention to that nasty steep stuff. I think that's the big that, – that is probably the best thing for killing big bulls anywhere. It's just nasty and steep. Yeah. Where Where is nobody else going to go? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, and it goes without saying. Everybody said that, but you've got to get a little more creative than even that. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you, I, I'm often, I'm always surprised when I find a big bull and sometimes I'm really surprised at where I found that big bull. Oh, it's so true. I think inherently we all tend to, whenever you, I don't know what the quote is, uh, I think it's Mark Twain, I don't want to butcher this, but whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Uh, the, the typical way to look for a big bull is to look for the farthest point from a road. And inherently, I think we've shot out a lot of those big bulls. And so if you look backwards and think, okay, where's, where's the next place? Where's the next thing? You know, is it, and it could be right next to a freeway. And that's, that's so true across so many states. I think big bulls will get killed right next to big freeways because nobody thinks about that. You know, you don't f- give up my secrets here. <laughs> <laughs> We're just crushing your secrets. And if everybody's <laughs> in your spot next year, you'd be like, God damn it, that Cody guy. <laughs> yeah. No, no, there's a. Uh- but I, I mean, you literally, you know, as generic as it sounds, you you really have to think outside the box and mm-hmm. get creative in, in terms of how you're going to hunt these units and really figuring out where everybody else is hunting and how they're hunting. Uh, I think yeah. is the best thing I've I've done and either getting away from that into a roadless section, you know, on, on X, you can get into those roadless sections on there. That, that's great. You're going to find animals in there, but you've really got to take it to another level if you're going to start consistently locating and killing big elk yeah no it's so true one of the things that we're i was thinking the other day on a scout trip um in or you take the roadless areas and inherently you're always going to have someone with horses that can out push you i mean you know i have horses and we're going to get to areas that can't that you can cross anywhere right there's nowhere that's that far in the lower 48 that's that far from a road i mean you go 25 miles from something you're probably pretty dang close to another road that's like uh, you know around the corner and there's a guy on a four where they're sitting there so it's thinking even farther outside of the box is like what are the guys and for me it's you know a matter of guys with horses are inherently lazy which is going to sound bad but a lot of people who have horses and this is the same with four-wheelers like if you can get a four-wheeler somewhere it makes you a little bit lazy because you don't want to get off the four-wheeler same is true with horses so you get guys that that will horseback in you know 15 20 miles and that's great but they aren't willing to hunt the nasty little crevices that are 20 miles back or the nasty little hole that you know maybe it's only five miles back you know so like you have to think it's like that's just a little bit of how i think outside of the box is like 
you know, how am I using an area to its benefit? If guys are in here with horses or if guys are in here with four wheelers, I actually like areas where people can hunt on a four wheeler because I know that makes the average hunter lazy. And if he can't see it from a four wheeler trail, he's probably not going to hunt it. Cause if he has access to hunt, you know, 10,000 acres and ride his four wheeler all over, he, he's less likely to get off the four wheeler and go search this little hole where he can't see into. Exactly. I agree with that. And I mean, that, that's something that I actually do is try and figure out spots that are so nasty that you could never get horses into. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are typically not attractive to the guys that are going to hunt within a mile, a uh, half mile or a mile of the road. And, you know, they're just kind of in-betweeners. Yeah, the in-betweeners. And that's why you don't see them using these same sounds, even though bulls talk year round. You don't see them getting aggressive and defensive toward one another like that. No way. Not in their speech. It only happens at the time when the cows are coming into heat. So what I do is start raking right there, and I'm planting that seed in his mind that I'm displaying for this elk. And many times as I start raking, I'll give a few more cow sounds, and I'm kicking my heel on the ground, and I'm kind of giving those. I just make a lot of little noises, and I'll pant. Anytime a bull pants, it denotes excitement or frustration. That's the only reasons they do it. There's no other reason that a bull will start panting. And as he's doing it, he's showing his emotion, his feeling his oats for this cow. So I'm planting the seed with sounds that he would hear from a real elk. How many guys, have you ever tried any of those? You're panting, you're giving those little groans, you're all the same sequence. This is what a real bull will do. Most hunters don't even think of doing stuff like that. So you're really selling it. And sooner or later, as you start working that up, nine times out of ten, that bull will either start coming over towards you silently, more than anything, to sit and check the cow, or he'll give a short scream to try to call the cow over. And when he does that's when I unleashed a challenge right over the top of them and cement the deal that I have a hot cow right there. Is there any advice that you have for not getting discouraged kind of on that same thread? I mean, how do you, I mean, you're a robot, so you probably don't get discouraged at all. But <laughs> I thought we were going with Professor here. I thought we dropped the robot nickname. I like Professor a lot better. Okay. So does the professor have any advice on staying positive or just not getting discouraged? I know a lot of people, it, we get all excited listening to these podcasts and, and going through the course and listening and watching the videos that you put out. And we get to elk season and then all of a sudden elk season punches us in the face. And it's really hard to stay positive and keep a positive mindset sometimes, but it can be crucial. It can really be the difference between tagging out and and, and going home early and empty handed. What advice do you have on just trying to keep positive? You know, I think there's a couple things. I think having good hunting partners that aren't just Debbie Downer all the time, you know, that that wears on you. So if you're hunting with somebody that's negative, that every time something goes wrong, they're pointing it out and throwing a pity party, that, that wears on a person. And so having good hunting partners that are uplifting, that are, you know, in it for the long haul, that understand that elk hunting is not easy. There's going to be multiple failures every day. And you just have to push through those. So having, you know, somebody there, a support group around you is important. The other thing is just realizing that it just takes one. It just takes one situation. It just takes one bowl. It just takes one opportunity. 
to make it all come together. And that opportunity might come the last 30 minutes of the last day that you're able to hunt. And if you fold in and, you know, take down camp and head home a little bit early, you might've missed that opportunity. And so I think just, yeah, we get discouraged when a bull comes in and wins us and we're at full draw and that might've been our chance. It's, you know, we're bummed out if we, you know, miss a shot or wound an animal, you know, those things are, they're heavy and it, it takes its toll. But I just think, you know, you have to keep reminding yourself, you aren't going to fill your tag if you quit. And if your goal is to fill your tag, you've got to stay with it. And if that means going to the end and, and not filling your tag and having a rough hunt, you know, there's definitely uh, successes that came along the way and things that you've learned. And if you aren't learning something new every day, uh, you're kind of wasting your time out there and, and missing the point of being there. Yeah. One of the <clears throat> biggest things that helped me throughout the years was really stop, stop, to stop focusing on being successful, quote unquote, or punching a tag and just understanding on and working towards being a better hunter every day. And then once it became like, okay, it doesn't matter if I fill a tag or not. I just want to be a better hunter today than I was yesterday. And like, it sounds so cliche, but sometimes some of the most cliche sayings are for a reason. And you know, <laughs> when you really focus on this whole, just getting better, getting better and understanding and, and some days that'll kick you in the face too. And you'll feel like, man, I am not a better hunter than I was ever at any point. Um, but you know, just working on that and not really focusing so much on the end goal. And I think too many people go into elk season focused on the end goal and not on the day to day and the be here now and just experiencing elk country. And when you kind of let go of, I need to kill a bull, it tends to just happen. Totally. And I think having realistic expectations. So <laughs> You know, if somebody's coming from Illinois for their first time ever being out west and they're getting an over-the-counter elk tag in Colorado and, you know, laying eyes on Colorado for the first time in their life, you know, they they can't expect, their their realistic expectation probably shouldn't be to kill a 300-inch 6x6. You know, for them, it might be, I just want to find elk and hear an elk bugle. And, you know, so I, I guess... Keeping it realistic is important because when we set unrealistic goals, not to say we shouldn't, you know, challenge ourselves and, and stretch ourselves a little bit, but, you know, to come to over-the-counter unit in Colorado and expect to shoot a 400-inch bull or any size of a bull, you know, for that matter, I think you just have to really go into it re with realistic expectations and then enjoy every aspect of it because there's 150 other parts of a hunt besides filling a tag. Yeah. And when that's your only focus and only goal, you know, that's, that's a couple minutes out of a eight day hunt. And if that's your only goal, you're, you're really missing out on some pretty epic experiences that you might not be aware of going on around you. How do you know when you're close enough? I mean, you move, locate a bull and he's down here and you start sneaking in and we all do this. Uh, I think he's right here, right about here. You know, we don't have that sense that elk have where they can pick you out from four feet away, <laughs> uh, within four feet. But you know, when you're moving in, how do you know when you're close enough without giving away your position? I think if you're comfortable, you aren't close enough. <laughs> and, that, and that's honestly, I think we all have that comfort zone that, oh, this is a perfect setup. I'm going to set up here and, you know, we're, we're relaxed and everything's great. In that situation, yeah, I might set up and, and try to call that elk in there. But for the most part, I'm going to push ahead a little bit farther and get out of that comfort zone. And, and it depends, you know, if that bull is screaming his head off, 
you can keep moving right into 80 yards of it and, you know, get to that last gap that he has to cross and get set up there and just get the collar back behind uh, far enough that uh, the bull is going to come to a vantage point uh, before you can see where the calls are coming from and be in the shooter's lane. But yeah, for the most part, we're just pushing that boundary of comfort just to say, we've got to be getting close. And I usually push another 20 yards and sometimes it bites us and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. How do you, I guess I was thinking about that. I mean, I don't know how many times I've thought if I just get to that next bush, that would be the perfect spot. And then boom, I get busted, um, which is always the dilemma. But I was going to talk about setups. How important is that setup and choosing the right spot? And what do you look for when, you, when you're moving in on an elk and you're like, oh, this is the, the perfect, what's the perfect spot look like? You know, set up, to, to answer your first question, setups are vital to success when you're calling because you can call a bull in with no shooting lanes and you can come to 20 yards, you aren't getting a shot. If you're set up behind a tree or behind a clump of brush, and the bull can be standing six feet away and you aren't going to get a shot. So the setup is, is really the critical component to putting calling and success together. And, you know, the ideal setup is first off, the bull is coming in. He's usually using all three senses. Um, so you've got to pick a setup that's going to minimize his ability to see his ability to, to hear and his ability to smell. Um, but at the same time, you want to make him feel like he is protected and comfortable coming in. So you don't want to set up in a thick alder patch. You don't want to set up in a wide open field. Uh, you just want, you know, that sparse timber, good mix where you have shooting lanes, but you have plenty of cover because the bull is going to feel safe coming through that as well. Um, you want to always pay attention to the wind and I don't like to approach, you know, with the wind right in my face. Uh, the reason why is if the wind switches, it usually switches directly opposite and now it's going right to the elk. So I always try to approach from a crosswind. So coming in perpendicular to the wind direction, which usually means getting on the same level as the elk uh, elevation wise and then moving side hill towards them. Uh, and then, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a collar back behind you, which is you know, a lot of people hunt solo and there's definitely tactics that can, can improve that. But if you're truly looking to increase your success, a two person set up, set up for calling where you have a shooter out in front and a caller back behind is, you know, three or four X going to increase your success just because that shooter's out front, the elk doesn't know the shooters there as it's coming in. It's focused on the caller's location. And if that caller can bring the, the bull through the shooting lane, which is now their job, um, it just takes a lot of pressure off the shooter and, and doesn't give up the shooter's location to the bull. So just uh, making sure that the shooter's set up downwind of the bull. So when the bull comes in, it's not circling below the shooter and winding the shooter before they have a shot. Um, a good game trail, you know, if there's an open game trail, an elk's going to take that as opposed to going cross country through blowdowns and other things. So finding a place where you can set up where just looking at it and say that is the place where the elk is most likely to come, where he's going to have a visual advantage. He's probably going to come up a little higher than where the caller is so he can see down if there's a game trail there, if the wind's in your favor, get set up, you know, to take advantage of that. And uh, and then just make sure that you've got shooting lanes because last thing you want to do is have that bull standing 10 yards away and you're at full draw for two minutes and <laughs> can't get a shot because there's a tree right in front of you. 
Yeah, it's finding that magic balancing point between being concealed enough that he has to come look for you and not be able to see you from 120 yards or 100 yards, but not being so thick that he's got to be at five yards before you get a shot. Totally. And I think that's where having a caller behind, you know, the shooter can pick that ideal shooting lane setup. And then the caller, it doesn't matter if the caller's in a big patch of alders or, you know, if he's 60 yards behind, you just have to make sure that that bull elk has to come to the shooting lane before he can see where the caller is at. Because if he gets to that point where he can see where the sound's coming from and doesn't see an elk, he's going to hang up. And that's that's the crutch of solo hunting is that bull gets to 80 or 100 yards <laughs> and he can see that tree that you're sitting up in front of and he doesn't see an elk and he's going to stand there until he you know, visually recognizes there's an elk there and he's not going to come any closer. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I spend most of my time hunting by myself. So I get there's a lot of these same things where you have to move from your last calling position and then you really, really, really want to call and you can't cause you can't move again. And so, yeah, it's, it definitely is much easier when you have someone calling for you and just taking that attention off of you. Um, yep. doesn't even have to be a great caller. You can, I mean, put anyone back there and just a little bit of attention Totally. Yeah. And those things can cover so much ground and they can pinpoint sound so incredibly well. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the, one of the tactics I use if I'm hunting by myself is pretty much the exact same thing you're talking about, you know, move as you can get as far up as you can call and then move forward. But my calls, I'm usually turning around and throwing them backwards. And mm -hmm. if you, if you cow call into your bugle tube, it's really directional and you can, you can throw that sound at least a little bit, especially if it's a soft, muffled cow call, those bulls have a harder time pinpointing that. So if I'm hunting by myself, I'll typically throw it off, you know, 45 degrees behind me and keep it muffled so that the elk has a, maybe thinks it's another 20 or 30 yards back there and maybe off at an angle. That way they aren't coming in head on, which they always seem to do when you're hunting by yourself. They're coming straight to the calls and mm -hmm. usually left with a frontal shot at 60 yards because they can see where you're calling from and they're facing you and you just don't have a shot. So what do you think most people do wrong? Man, I don't know. I, I'm so unconcerned with most people, you know, like I'm just trying to focus on, on what I can control and what I can do. Right. But I'll answer your question. Not that I don't want to get into giving, giving advice. What I think most people do wrong. is just, it's just lack of effort to be honest. Um, you know, where is everybody when I'm out there? Because they're not where I'm at. <laughs> like, I just don't. I think it's hunter effort. I mean, that's my honest answer. I just I don't see people. I mean, I saw giant bulls off the freaking county road last year on public land, not being hunted by anybody in an area that gives out a shitload of tags. Yeah. You know, where are you guys at? I'm talking to you, <laughs> Penny Wednesday Nation. Let's go. You know, so like, man, I think there's enough information out there um, for, for anybody to, to become an elk hunter and to become a successful elk hunter. Um, my college football coach used to say, effort is our edge. Effort is our edge. Effort's our edge. Just scream it. Like, that's buried into my head. Effort. Like, just put more into it, man. That's... That's the advice I'd give. That's such good advice. Yeah. That's a great spot to end the podcast, guys. Yeah. Hands down, what I think most people do or don't do is not go that extra little bit. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I hope you guys pulled something from that. I mean, if you didn't, I'm amazed that you're still listening. So 
Anyway, thank you guys so much for all the support. Thanks to everyone who helped make this ginormous podcast possible. And do me a huge, huge, huge favor. I know it's a pain in the ass, but please go leave us a review. It'll help us out so much. Thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast as well as the companies that, that make the show possible. So thank you. Hope you guys enjoy it and good luck this season.